This is Chicago's Game Day, only on ESPN 1000 at ESPNChicago.com. Cohen from his own 40. Going the wrong way. Trying to reverse field, and look at this. He's got some blockers now. He was going the right way. Cohen all the way. Touchdown, Chicago. Levine, he goes right by. Stop it, Samson. Did you not get the memo? He didn't come for the massage. He came for the facial. Oh, my goodness. Chicago's game day. Here's Mankata. That ball went hard in the center field. Stretch. You can put it on the board. Yeah. Yes. Trubisky escapes again, and he's got plenty of room to run. Look at him go. Trubisky is out inside the 30. There's the athleticism for the rookie. Out in the deep left center. It's back toward the wall. It's gone. This is Chicago's Game Day, only on ESPN 1000 and ESPNChicago.com. Good morning, everyone. Welcome on in. Fred Hubner, along with Chris Black, who just did an awesome job his first hour. I'm Thank just going to replay that for the next hour and a half because you ran all the great stats from the NBA and uh, the NCAA tournament. Where it is Selection Sunday. I told Eric when I walked in, I said, you know, maybe I should have paid more attention to college basketball this week. Well, Fred, do you feel the same way I do where I'm looking at the rundown for today and I say, all right, Selection Sunday, let's watch. Oh, wait, the SEC is the only... Only big championship game to watch. Everything else is decided. What? What is the I know, point? What, I know. Thanks, I, Big Ten. Thank well, you. Appreciate yeah, it. And and then, you know, with the Big Ten, they'll have no excuses this year because they had plenty of time to relax. Three one two three three two three seven seven six. That's the number. Before we forget to give it to you, Brian Hamilton from the Athletic will join us talking about the tournament around nine thirty. Kevin Arnovitz from ESPN, their NBA insider, around ten. Uh, my Major League Baseball notebook coming up at 10.30. Also at 11, John Ledyard, the uh, Fan Rags NFL draft analyst. But I heard you upstairs, and, you know, Chris, you're forgetting mm-hmm. the, um, and I know Cap's not forgetting it, the A-10 <laughs> championship today, Rhode Island and Davidson. Uh, you're forgetting the AAC, Cincinnati and uh, Houston. You're forgetting the yeah. Ivy, Harvard and Penn. The Sun Belt, Georgia State against UT Arlington. Come on. Fred, I know what I said. Aren't you all wound up? I stand by what I said. Jeez. Thanks a lot, Big Ten. And uh, I saw some of Cap yesterday uh, yeah. calling the games. You know the thing about that got uh, that I thought was kind of weird? And we'll talk about the NCAA tournament. We got some callers on it. So I want to talk about some stuff you were getting into uh, at the end of your hour. And uh, we'll talk about that. So, Patrick, hang in there uh, one second. But uh, I was surprised that tournaments were playing their championship game at like four and six o'clock last night now yeah. i understand it's a saturday night but you should understand it's a saturday night people like to go out it's college basketball for the next couple of weeks people are going to be in front of their tv for the tournament they should have played those games at like one and three or one and four the latest i mean you know i i had other things to do the fire was opening up their home season last night their schedule last night five o'clock start i wasn't going to sit around and watch games i know that villanova and jalen brunson i heard you mention it and jalen brunson with 31 points and it was a career high and 
you know, they move on and they're going to be a real tough team when tournament time comes around. At least you think they are. You never know because this year they lost to Creighton and Butler. I think those were the two games they yeah. lost or two of the games they lost. And we get Ryan Hamilton. I just want to ask him, why does everybody hate Virginia? Everybody hates Virginia just because of the style of play. You know what? Yeah. You know what your style of play is supposed to be? How do you take the guys to go on out and win games? And that's basically what they do. Yeah. Do you hate winning? Yeah, I yeah. know. We don't like his style of play. Another win. I mean, come on. I, mean, I, it, I am it's shocked, uh, Fred, based on uh, what time they were played. I'm shocked that one of the other conferences didn't slide into that spot on Sunday. Yeah. Me too. And, and try and take where, because I mentioned the SEC. That game today is at noon. Yeah. So that game will be over by 2 o'clock. Right. 2.30. Everybody will go away. But why didn't the the ACC or the Big East or Big 12 slide into that 2.30, 3 o'clock window right, right before selection? Sunday which was starts? always which was always great because, it, like you said, it led you right into it. Yeah. And at halftime, they would get you all pumped up for the selection shows coming up and whatever station and whatever network was going to run the selection show and how they were going to break it down and everything else. Now, I mean, after you watch that game today, you're going to sit around and say, okay, I got two hours. What am I going to do? Some people will watch Tiger. I won't be one of them, but some people will watch Tiger. I heard you talk about that. And yeah, I mean, if you're a golf fan and you like Tiger Woods, now's the time to watch him. Just so you, just for, so everybody knows, uh, Corey Connors is the leader of yes. the uh, Valspar tournament. Uh, he's at nine under. Brant Snedeker, Justin Rose, also at eight under par, along with a guy named Tiger Woods. Connors, the good Canadian, Fred. That's there you uh, go. what I caught from the broadcast is that there were Canadians who traveled to the Tampa area and they followed him around on the course. That's what they kept talking about all day yesterday. Well, How'd they know they were all Canadians? This poor Corey Connors has a few <laughs> Canadians that are following him around. That's what they kept saying. And I watched at least five to six holes yesterday. Did afternoon. you really? Yeah, you know why? I, you know me, I'm obsessed with the NBA uh-huh. and college yeah. basketball. When we get to the tournament is great, but I'm just not, I don't have the same vibe for the conference tournaments. Right. Either do so, I. So, I never do. So I hate I'm, conference tournaments. I'm fine getting to the bracketology tonight yeah. and then setting the brackets for next week. But yesterday afternoon, it was like, all right, I can watch uh, the Suns and the Hornets, which was up my alley. Right. Or I could watch Tiger Woods. But the last thing on my plate was going to turn on one of these Conference, conference tournament games, games, yeah. I'm not a fan of conference championships, and, and I mentioned it about a week or so ago when Loyola had won their regular season, and then a lot of people said it, and they were probably right, that if Loyola didn't win the Horizon League tournament, not yeah. the Horizon League, the Missouri Valley tournament, they would not go to the go to the tournament. Now, no matter how well UIC played down the stretch, without winning the Horizon, they weren't going to the big dance. Yeah, Horizon They might League- go to a smaller dance. Yeah, they, and yeah. that's possible, and you right. can find uh, that information out probably later on tonight, whether right. or not they're going to continue on uh, playing their post-season uh, schedule. Yeah, probably so, around six thirty, seven o'clock, because yeah. they announced those pretty quick. Yeah, they, yes, yes. It's uh, interesting how they ha- how it's announced so quickly. Yeah, right? I know. Um, but yeah, so locally, Loyola, where are they going to land? Uh, bracketology right now, Joe Lenardi on ESPN.com has them going to Dallas, and they would be the 11 seed against Houston. Uh, the other side of that small bracket in Dallas, it would be Auburn, the three seed, against Wright State, the 14 seed, who won the Horizon League. Okay. So uh, that's what we're looking at right now, maybe seeing where Loyola ends up. But for me personally, I don't think locally there's many invested interests. I no. mean, if you're a Big Ten fan, you know that your school is either probably in or out. It's Michigan, you're in. You know, Michigan State, you're in. There are Purdue, some schools. you're in. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, I know on the bubble – 
first four out, Notre Dame. So if you're a big Notre Dame fan, that's something to watch later on today. But besides that, I don't I don't have the same buzz that I think we usually do. And I, I think part of that is that we kind of already right. know who's in. I think it's going to change. I mean, and the Big Ten uh, already said that uh, they had to compress their schedule and they were playing five games in 12 days during the season just so they could play, get that tournament started and play at Madison Square Garden. So that'll probably change. Can we get more tournaments in New York for, for college basketball? Can Please, we get no. more? I like your idea, the tournaments in Vegas. Was that the Big 12? <laughs> No, the Pac-12. Pac-12, yeah, I mean, they're that, smart. That works. Yeah. That gets it done, right? Bring your tournament to Vegas. That's a wonderful thing. There's right, more than enough. I'd love to go to that. Yeah, that'd be fun. You can play it at all hours of the night. There'd always be people there. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, it would be outstanding. <laughs> right, and then, it wouldn't matter. You know, when you're not watching college hoops, you could go do other yeah. things. It's fantastic. Sure, sure you could. 312-332-3776. A lot of other things to get into uh, before we are out of here. We're here for a couple hours, and we'll get to the calls in one second. I just want to mention and congratulate Orr. Or high school for winning the uh, Class AA state championship. Uh, they're repeat champs, uh, 76-49, and win over Winnebago. They beat uh, uh, a house on wheels, basically. They beat a <laughs> Winnebago, 76-49, to and uh, not even a close. And uh, they repeat. And remember, there was a great, col- a great article, I think it was last year, about Orr before the tournament started, the uh, basketball high school basketball tournament, about the school and how the kids, it was tough for the kids to get there. It's not in the best part of the city. And um, it was a very great article. I think Rick Tellender actually wrote the article uh, in the Sun-Times. Now, or back-to-back state champs, and that's great to see. The uh, bigger schools, the 3As and 4As, they have their super sectionals on, uh, when, or on Tuesday. They don't call them super sectionals now anymore. The whole thing screwed up once they went to four, turn, four uh, class instead of two because yes. I've been going right. for like 28 years right. so I'm not sure who we're going to see when I when I get down there with my buddies in Peoria uh, on Friday and Saturday but uh, always look forward to that and there'll be a couple other of the uh, public league teams getting on down to Peoria. Now you were talking tanking and I wanted to get into this with something that happened in the last Bulls game mm-hmm. but before we do let's go on out to a guy who's been pa- uh, very patient on the line. Let's go on out to Arlington Heights and Patrick you're on ESPN 1000. Hey Patrick what's up? Hey Chris, hey Fred, thanks for having me on. What's going on? Uh, um, I yeah, I wanted to talk about the tanking and the NBA draft. I know it seems so simple, uh, but I'm on board with you, Chris. If you just give teams one through fourteen, the fourteen teams that don't make the playoffs, all the even balls, whether it's one ball, five balls, however many balls you want to do it, you give everybody the even amount. It, there's no tanking for for the worst record. The only tanking that you would maybe get would be teams with the eighth, seventh, and sixth seed. You know, you can argue, well, they might want to lose to get that number one spot or that number one pick possibility. But the amount of money that teams make from playoff uh, series, even if they lose, and the amount of experience that their players get, um, I don't think that would uh, be a problem. On top of fixing tanking, I believe that it would fix a lot of the uh, big disparities between uh, the top teams and the rest of the league. Uh, a lot of what happens is teams uh, end up in the middle, like the Bulls were for a few years, and you never get. Uh, over that home, because unless you get a major free agent, which a lot of them don't, um, if you gave teams from 10 to 14 a chance to have the top pick or the second pick, third pick, can you imagine when the Bulls had Butler and all them, if they got the first pick and ended up with Ben Simmons or, or Joel Embiid or, you know, one of these guys where, uh, you know, it can change the franchise, especially if you have someone already like Jimmy Butler and stuff like that. So I just, I think that if everybody had the same amount that didn't make the playoffs, I think it would really get rid of that. And on, on a side note, 
Oh, on a side note, we lost him. Oh, that that stinks. And, and yeah, it wasn't. That wasn't. Thanks even for the us. call, Patrick. Thanks yeah. for hanging on. He called probably uh, thirty minutes ago uh, on the best of one thousand. So you know, uh, he was referring to Ryan Russell was talking with Waddle and Sylvia. I played the cut, and they're talking about how uh, just the, the, j- here's the idea, right? If everyone has the same opportunity to land the number one pick, how do you tank? Uh-huh. Right? Like I that, agree. Isn't it that simple? Right? I, I think so, too. I don't know why it wouldn't, why they wouldn't do that. It seems to make complete sense. Everybody gets one ping pong ball. You go from there. Yeah. And right? so, like, you can still have the lottery. You can still have your chances be, you know, it's not a given who's going to be one through whatever. For one through 14. Pick. You know, yeah. like, it's not. That I think that's simple and it fixes the problem. I, I I see like a lot of people really really trying to think of like all these different ways to fix it. You know, losers bracket and oh do this and no oh, no the team that's the first one out of the Western Conference gets the number one pick because they deserve it because they try like no 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 everyone just has the same odds yeah like, one what? ping ball and you know what's what's nice too is you'd be able to show it like. You know, like people were playing bingo. You got a box. You yeah. got a machine up there. Here are the fourteen balls. Yeah. You got the the team on each each one of them. Boom! You pop it out. There it is. Now there's a chance that with this year you could see uh, a team's getting. You know, if a team has two picks and you know one pick, their own pick, and then another pick. Okay. Boom! They get all right. They you can get first double and the second. chances. Well, There's, then here, yeah. here's the key, right? Don't trade away your first round pick yeah. if you're not going to make. You know, right? Like so. So I, I think if. If that's the key, I think that fixes everything because, Fred, I think you're right. If you trade a first-round pick and that pick is also in the lotto, then, yeah, it goes into the batch. Yeah. But say the, the Cavs have Brooklyn's pick. So right. that would be Brooklyn, right? They're yeah. in the lotto. But say uh, a team had a first-round pick like the Bulls right now have the Pelicans. They're going to make the playoffs, so that would not be in the lotto. The Pelicans are like 9-1 and one the last yeah. 10 games. Well, Drew Holiday is playing out of his mind. They uh, went from 15. Yeah. You know, once one one uh, position out of the lottery yeah. to twenty fifth. Yeah. And so I mean, it's like and again, I'm saying things backwards because I always print up the tankathon when I get in here uh-huh. every day. And right now, there are three teams that are a game and a half ahead of the Bulls for the uh, fifth, sixth, and seventh picks. Uh, there are three teams. I think Dallas has won two in a row. Just wait after today because the Bulls play the Hawks, yeah. and uh, there's a good chance the Bulls are going to win that game. So uh, best of luck to you. You're probably your best odds. You're you're going to be eighth. That, yeah. That's what's going to happen. The Chicago Bulls will probably pick eighth. So there you have it. Well, I wanted to talk to you about what happened the other day. And you're you're Mister NBA. You and Hood and Abdallah. You guys love the league. You love the game. You're watching it all the time. I thought what happened the other day was worse than tanking. I thought the commissioner coming, and I didn't have a problem with the commissioner saying, "Listen, these guys are healthy. You can't sit them on the bench." Just to try to play other people, and you know they're on your roster. They're healthy guys. You got to address them, and you got to play them. But I thought what Fred Hoiberg did was worse by playing him the first quarter, then putting him down. Not not because of well, maybe because of how it showed the league and the the you know what it looked like for the league, but also for the rest of his teammates. Okay, here's all the other guys and going. Listen, we're only we're within six or we're within eight. 
Why don't we put in Holiday or why don't we put in Lopez? Nope, they're sitting on the bench. You guys go on out there and recreate. Do the best you can. And that, I think, it just, could you even imagine being one of those guys? It's like you're at the free throw line and it's a close game. You're going, what am I supposed to make this or miss it? What am I supposed to do? Well, now, yeah, I know right. players don't ever want, players don't want to tank, but it gets to the point where if your head coach is sitting two of your better players, two of the guys that started the game on the bench and not putting them back in, how do you go on out there and play a competitive game? Right. And I think, Fred, the entire thing was a slap on the wrist. I think the league was using the Bulls because the Bulls always play by the rules. Yeah. And I think the Bulls are one of the franchises that the league appreciates. And I think they used the Bulls as an example to warn everyone else. Because, like, think about it. Are people really bothered that Robin Lopez wasn't playing in games? He was sitting. You know, like, like what NBA fan is out there outraged yeah. that he can't watch Robin Lopez play? Right. With the Lakers, Luol Deng hasn't played in forever. Right. Right? They've sat him almost virtually the entire season. Yeah. It, what's the difference there? But they've already gone after the Lakers. They've gone after him multiple times. They've gone after Magic Johnson for commenting on Giannis Anadokounmpo. Right. So, like... They've they gone, gone after Dallas They've gone Cuban after Dallas for, Yeah, for saying Cuban. I'm tanking. What did the Bulls do? The Bulls have been up front... John Paxson has been forward-facing, talking the entire time exactly about the plan that they're they're implementing, and the Bulls are doing it, right? Yeah. And they're actually, if you want to look at it one way, you could also look at it that they're doing that in the poorest way possible because they're winning games. Yeah. So they've told you what they're going to do, and they're winning games. I think the league was just trying to use the Bulls as an example to kind of say, hey, everyone else, don't do this because we're going to have something to say. I don't. I think that's all it is. And I, I agree with you. It's frustrating because you don't want to see them win these games, but they are winning the games. But then when the guys are playing and then they don't go in, it's like, what What really is going on here? Yeah. Because there have been games where Hoiberg has pushed Holiday, Lopez, right. some of these players towards the end, yeah. and you win these games, and it's like, well, okay, we're, we're going to pick eighth. Right. Like, I get it that everyone keeps pointing to that we, we have a shot to get the number one pick. Yeah. All right. Good luck with that. What are you going to do? In the, uh, and we talked about this yesterday with Murph, um, the 80 and 81st games of the year against Brooklyn. Yeah. Good luck. What are you going to do? I mean, Brooklyn has no real incentive to. No, to, they'll, they'll, Brooklyn pro- they'll has play no incentive. Hard. Right. Yeah. Brooklyn has no incentive to lose those games because the yeah. pick is Cleveland's. Yeah. Well, I, I would imagine that at that point, your uh, your bed will already be made for you because they've won too many games, Fred, against teams that are below them in the standings already. Yeah. They've beaten the Grizzlies. They're going to play the Hawks today. They're going to beat the Hawks. They've already beaten the Hawks this season. They've beaten the Magic multiple times. All of these teams are they are losing on purpose. The Bulls have gone out and won those games. I know they've lost a fair share of games, too. But, like, in the end of all of this, in five years from now, are we really going to look back and say, man, that eighth pick really turned out for us in 2017, 2018, right? Like, you know, I I think what what we'll all probably look back on is we'll go, man, DeAndre Ayton, wow, he and Embiid are the two best centers in the league. Yeah, well, we we may also say, you know, look back and say, well, um, Nobody thought they were going to get Larry Markin or he, Larry Markin was going to be the player that he was. And I say was because the last couple of games and last, actually the last three weeks, yeah. he, he's kind of struggled a little bit. And uh, that's going to happen to rookies hitting the wall. I mean, he's used to playing 30 or 35 games. Now he's playing 80. You yeah. Know? And, you know, I, I heard Sylvie say it to Rosillo, uh, the other day. And like the, the idea is that it, it's not that it can't possibly work out. It could. 
The idea is that you want to increase your odds. Your odds, right. Uh, yeah, that's it. Like, yeah. I get it. Kawhi was drafted later. Draymond Green drafted later. Jimmy Butler drafted later. Kuzma was drafted, what, Kuzma. 22nd yeah. or 27th or something like that. The other the kid from Utah. Um, yeah, uh, Donovan Mitchell. Right, yeah. Mitchell was 13th. Okay, you, so you, you can get guys. You can find guys, right. You can find guys, and that's that's where your scouting comes in. Yeah. And what, what confidence sure. do you have in the Bulls scouting? That's another Another question. Let's go to Lakeview and Chris. You're on ESPN 1000. Hey, Chris. Marcus Teague. <laughs> it's Chris. Thanks for the, the call. Um, there's two thoughts I have. One, you've talked about the incentive for tanking, and then you've talked about the the other thing that we haven't really gone into is w- wanting people to be competitive. And I really think the NBA should look at rewarding the team's with a higher uh, chance of getting the top pick who come in just outside of the playoffs, the number nine seed, the number 10 seed, you know, in each conference, because the teams are already motivated to make the playoffs with the, the financial incentives. So then if you have the teams that are just on the outside looking in and a caller just made the same reference, you know, if all of a sudden you've got a team that is just below 500 and they get one of the better players in the draft, that could vault them from a ninth seed or 10th seed to a fourth or fifth seed the following year it could be a lot more volatile but i think it would be fun to watch hey chris can i ask you a question which team outside the playoffs just almost there doesn't have incentive right now to win what um I i would say well it's i guess it goes back to your ability to draft i mean i i think next year it's going to be a totally different situation where there's not going to be the reward of people trying to lose I just think there's two different issues there with the incentive to tank and then the incentive to be competitive. Because if you have the teams who have a really bad roster and they're like, look, we may not be able to win in the playoffs, but we need to be aggressive in the offseason and go after free agents as opposed to buying up talent just to fill out their roster and pay the bills um, only to finish you know, in the bottom four or five teams. So I don't know. I think it would create more incentive for the teams in the offseason to try to be as competitive as possible to get closer to that playoff line. I'm, I, I don't think I answered your question. but <laughs> No, it's all right. Thanks for the call, Chris. I mean, uh, you know, the thing to kind of consider is if you look at the teams that are just on the outside to there's get only, in. There's only two teams, really. Yeah, I mean, it's Detroit, Charlotte. Uh, you've got Denver, Utah. Well, like, and Denver and Utah are only a half game out of the eight spot, where right. y- even the Pistons are five five games out. Right. So that makes a, that's a little bit more difficult to make up five games. You know, and then you look right below that. You know, the Lakers are a team that kind of should be tanking, right? But they're trying. They're yeah. trying to win games. They they see their young core and they're they're going out there and they're trying to beat teams. So that that doesn't really work. There, I mean. Listen, see, it, they, they also have a game tonight where they, where basically they're probably gonna you know have um, you know extra good food in uh, LeBron James' locker <laughs> when he gets there today because right the Cavs play the Lakers tonight. Yeah, the Cavs have been in L.A. for what four days now, yeah. three days, so, and so, that's usually the double dip that gets you. And they lost on the front end of that against the Clippers the other night. Yeah. Uh, but what it is is yeah. it's basically the time for the L.A. Lakers to say, okay, we want you to come play with us next year. Well, yeah, and, you know, I mean, listen, I agree with what Chris was saying. I think the incentive is there for teams because they see that they are aggressive. It doesn't matter what market you're in. It doesn't matter. All you have to do is assemble a group that's enticing for for a free agent to want to be there. That's all that you need to do. So I think, you know, is it likely that Sacramento can do that? Probably not. 
But can they? Sure. If yeah. they if they collect some young pieces and they they make their place desirable, then yeah, you can try and land a top free agent. And That's quick, all you need to do. Quickly, Philadelphia keeps coming up, and everybody mm-hmm. brings up Sam Hinkie and things like this. Just yeah, he died for us. Well, just to let you know, he you know when he first got there in Philadelphia, his first move was in the 2013 draft. So you figure, okay, for 2013, 2014, there were accusations of tanking in order to get a high pick in 2014. Sixers yeah. tied for the NBA record longest losing streak in that. So I, I understand he tried tanking, but that was in 13. Yep. They won 19 games, 18 games, 10 games, 28 games. That's what I think Bulls fans are fearful of. You know, Philadelphia's done it. It's taken them five years to get to where they want to get to. That should never be. Yeah, but those five years have set up their next 15, theoretically. Yeah, theoretically, maybe. I get the point that they didn't win many games over that span, but you need that many attempts at top picks to land in a B and a Simmons. Now, I know Nearland's Noel didn't work out. No. Uh, Okafor didn't Didn't work work out. out. Uh, Michael Carter-Williams didn't work out. (laughs) No. But, But you have landed, too, and, like, that's... That's the point, right? Like, because well, this, but this it, it is. But you're going to tell me for five years, how do you? How are you going to keep your fans around for five years when you say, "Listen, we're going." To, oh, I'm sorry, the Cubs did it. Uh, three well, one two well, yeah. three two three seven well, seven I mean, six. Think about it, Fred. The Bulls lead the league in attendance this year. I know. What's the end? They're always they're they're going to. People say, "Well, they're still going to come." So why wouldn't you tank if they're going to still come anyway? And Bulls fans are going to show up. Every single game, no matter what, it does not matter. See Red Nations there looking for their hamburger. Then what does it <laughs> matter, right? Like, like just tank anyway, so then at least you have a shot at a championship. I mean, that's better than 41 and 41 with the tryhard Kirk Heinrichs of the world. Oh, I love Kirk Heinrich. Of I course do too, I do. Yeah. But still, like, think about that team. Yep. That team was built with end of the top 10 first round picks, and it was assembled with good drafting. But did you ever get to that championship level? No. You only got there because you landed the ping pong ball to get Derek Rose. Derek Rose. And that was a short time span. Yeah, it was, unfortunately. And it. Now he's in Minnesota to see what happens. We come back. We'll talk about the NCAA tournament. Brian Hamilton from The Athletic joins us. Chris Black, Fred Hubner. We're here till noon on ESPN 1000. This is Chicago's Game Day. on ESPN 1000 at ESPNChicago.com. Shot clock down to eight. Brunson way out on the left wing. Brunson loses it, but Bridges gets it back. Fade away three. He hit it. Bridges hit an incredible three. Fading to his left. Catch by four. He's stepping up huge in overtime. This is Chicago's Game Day. Only on ESPN 1000 at ESPNChicago.com. Villanova with a big three in overtime as Villanova going to the tournament. Everybody knew they were going. We'll find out what the tournament brackets look like later on today. It is Selection Sunday. Fred Hubner along with Chris Black and uh, Chicago has just one team to cheer for right now. There may be one local uh, I don't know, the possibility of a Notre Dame getting in. We'll find out more. We'll talk about the tournament right now with Brian Hamilton from The Athletic. Brian, how are you today? Doing great, guys. How are you? We're doing real well. Let's start with what Chris and I were discussing, not, not only on the air a little bit, but during the commercial breaks. I understand it's all about the money, but I'm not a fan of conference tournaments. They'll never go away, will they? I, I've always thought that it would be nice if after you play an entire conference schedule that the winner of the league should just go automatically. Yeah, I mean, wishing that the conference tournaments go away, that's just, you know, that's a false hope. Yeah. These are two these these events are too big for these conferences. Um you can have the discussions certainly 
with one bid leagues. I mean, we've seen teams like Vermont that go, I think, 15 and one in the league. I mean, win their league by multiple games, be over the long haul, clearly the best team. And then they get upset in their conference final on their home floor. You can certainly, and we do this every year, argue one bid leagues. Should you just send your regular season champion because that's the greatest indicator of success of who the best team in your league is. Sure. But those leagues, too, get a lot of attention by these tournaments. And, again, you can make the argument, well, if you send your best team to the NCAA tournament and they win a couple games and you bring in money that way, um, that may outpace for your league what money it makes just for this one little tournament that's on, like, ESPNU for a couple days. But um, I, I don't think they're going away. I think that the one-bid leagues will do their best to give the teams the best advantage they can and then, you know, live with the result. For big leagues, for power conferences, there is just absolutely no way these things are ending. That's why we had you on, Brian. You're the voice of reason. You explain everything the yeah. way it's supposed to be explained. <laughs> Virginia won the ACC yesterday, and Joe Lenardi is projecting them to be the number one overall seed. Who do you think is uh, the team playing the best basketball right now in college basketball, though? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably between uh, Villanova and, and, and Virginia, in my mind. I mean, they've been so incredibly consistent, both teams, all year. Uh, if you forced me to pick one of them, um, I'd probably actually go with Villanova. The one thing about Virginia that always scares me, and maybe I'm scarred for seeing them lose to Syracuse in that Elite Eight game a couple of years ago in Chicago, they play amazing defense. But at some point in the NCAA tournament, you're going to face a team that figures out that defense for a little while, or you're just going to get a guy who gets incredibly hot, no matter how well you're playing defense. At that point, your offense needs to compensate. You need shot makers to help keep you afloat until that hot streak settles down or you reassert your defense. And I think that's always been kind of a vulnerability for Virginia in a tournament setting is that Maybe it didn't always have the guy who could consistently step up and make shots. I think they have more of those guys this year. I think they have more guys like a Kyle guy uh, who can step up, Devin Hall who can step up and make plays offensively to kind of keep them afloat, which is why I think you've seen the consistent success. But that, uh, until proven otherwise, that's still going to scare me a little bit about Virginia is okay, you've played great defense. What happens when the other team figures out that defense? Who on your team is there to carry you along until you get things straight again? Is, is their defense the reason so many people that are not Virginia alums or Virginia fans dislike Virginia? Because I yesterday, leading into the game, I'm just seeing all these people on Twitter and social media, that was probably my first mistake, just talking about how they hate the way Virginia plays, and I'm saying they win. Isn't that the, isn't that the point of the, uh, you know, the contest? Yeah, I, I don't. I kind of don't get it myself. I think it's kind of like an echo chamber at this point. The cool thing to say that Virginia is terrible to watch. They're really not. <laughs> I mean, they share the ball. They they move on offense. You know, is it is it a slower pace? Of course it is. And and are they a defense first team? Of course they are. And they're not going to press you full court and wreak havoc like West Virginia is. The tempo is going to be slower but there are a lot of good teams that play at real slow tempos i've been at the sec tournament this week and i've seen a lot of grinded out games with bad offense i would much rather watch virginia i mean there are a lot of teams basically that play the same way or wind up playing similar to the way that virginia plays they just don't do it as well (laughs) and i think people are just maybe 
upset that this, this, this way of doing things where it's just this patient, efficient offense that shares the ball where there's not a superstar player that just jumps off the screen at you, and then they settle in, they play awesome defense. People aren't accustomed to that. I think it's just become this echo chamber cool thing to say that Virginia's ugly to watch. They're really not. It's, 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 it's very easy to appreciate the way Virginia plays and wins basketball games. So being at the SEC tournament, seeing Kentucky, how impressive has it been to watch Calipari and what he's done with this young group again, getting them to the final today? It's at 12, and you can watch it on ESPN. Yeah, watching them over the past few days up close, um, I'm wondering now a little bit about what Kentucky's capable of because I think they've really settled into a lineup where all the guys have really defined good roles. I mean, Shia Alexander, Quadri Green in the backcourt. T.J. Washington has now come to understand that he's best as the guy who's down low, just beating people up, getting to the rim, as opposed to lingering on the outside as some sort of positionless wing player. Now that he's sort of really just embraced the role of being a bad dude for Kentucky, that gives them another element we saw Wayne and Gabriel kind of move into that role now where he's a spot-up shooter. He hit seven threes yesterday for them in their semifinal win. Um, I just really like the lineup they've settled on and the roles they've settled into. Again, they're always going to be a little enigmatic because it's freshmen, really young guys playing in the NCAA tournament. You never know. But that also, I think they're just as dangerous as they are enigmatic going in based on the roles they've all come to accept here now going into the March Madness. Brian Hamilton from The Athletic joining us in the studio. Hot Rods Hotline. Chris Black, Fred Hubner here on ESPN 1000. When the tournament selections come out, should the people in South Bend be watching or just say it's not going to happen? I have a tough time believing Notre Dame's getting in. I think they're, you know, look, I mean, if, if the Twitter feed this morning is to be believed, and we all know Twitter is always to be believed. <laughs> sure. Um, the NCAA, the NCAA tournament committee has decided on everybody. I think the, they're on, they're out there saying, look, we've got 68 plus one based on essentially what's going to happen with Davidson in the Atlantic 10 title game. So decisions have been made. Decisions have been made on Notre Dame, Marquette, Baylor, you know, St. Bonaventure, all your at, at large teams. I, I just wonder if the sort of, I don't know, rub it in bracketologist space and just I don't even know. I can't think of the reason Notre Dame would be in, really, based on the overall resume. Even though Bonzi came back, where are the big, super high-quality wins with him in the lineup? You beat Pittsburgh a couple times. Yeah, okay, you came back, you beat Virginia Tech. You know, you're playing your third game in three days against Duke and kind of got run off the floor there. So I would have a hard time seeing him in the field. I mean, I think it's worth watching. I think it's worth wondering because I do think the committee took a real, real hard look at Notre Dame and, and what it's capable of with its lineup intact. But that intact lineup, as many have pointed out, also lost to Ball State and Indiana, two non-tournament teams. So it wasn't like they were undefeated without Bonzi Colson in the lineup and without their flaws. I, I just have a real hard time seeing them making the field. Arizona won the Pac-12 last night. Uh, DeAndre Ayton had 32-18. and 18. How special can Ayton be? I mean, he's. I'm not sure he's of this planet. I'm, I really, I really, I'm really not. Um, you know, I was out in Tucson a few weeks ago doing a story on him, and sort of, you know, basically he's never had any extended formal weight training in his life before he got to Arizona. 
and he's put on 30 pounds of muscle since he arrived at Arizona. So this is a guy whose potential is only really starting to be tapped. I mean, he's, a, he's like a guy capable of 30, 20 nights in college, and really you're only starting to see the surface of what he's capable of. So long story short, if you have the number one pick in the NBA draft, do not overthink it. Take DeAndre Eight. Like, no, no, that is a probably a low risk proposition for you. And even if it doesn't work out, I think people will understand based on this guy, the, the tool set, what he can do, what he will be capable of as he gets more and more and more daily basketball instruction and growth. I, it's, it's unbelievable what he what he could be. So don't don't overthink it. Take DeAndre Ayton when you have the chance. You can find Brian Hamilton on The Athletic, the Fieldhouse College Basketball. Do you know where you're going once the tournament starts, or is it all be determined later? Uh, first stop is Nashville. Um, regionals may be determined, depending on how the bracket shakes out, but I will be headed down to Nashville. Um, curious to see who lands there. Could be Duke, Duke or Carolina as a two. Could be a Xavier there. Could be Tennessee playing in its own backyard. I mean, we'll see how it all shakes out. But, uh, yeah, first stop today is Scott Trade Center for the SEC final, and then it's on to Nashville later this week. Uh, we really appreciate it, Brian. Thanks a lot. And it should be a fun tournament because uh, nobody's really sure who they who's going to win this one, and that always makes for more interesting uh, watching. Yep, strong teams, but even the strong teams kind of have their flaws. So, you know, there's, there's, no, there's no dominant team. I don't know how wild it'll be. But even the best teams have some problems they've got to overcome, so it should be a fun one. Thanks a lot, Brian. We appreciate it. All right, guys. Thanks. Brian Hamilton from The Athletic, as uh, he gets to go to Nashville, and I was telling you off the air, Chris, I, mm-hmm. I made my first ever trip to Nashville uh, last week. My wife and I drove, drove down last uh, Monday, and uh, it was very fun. It's a yeah. fun place. Probably a little more, yeah, probably a little more fun. Um, when it was a little warmer, so okay. I'd probably go back there. You know, when you can what little because it got a little cold, a little chilly down there, and you know they were very cold down there. For well, us, let, it wasn't bad. Let me guess: you guys stayed out till what two, three a.m. You uh, you were in the bars, you were listening to country music, you were getting hammered. Well, right? I mean, lots yeah, of beer. We listened to country music. Uh, there's like four or five different breweries in the area, so I sampled their beers, but I didn't go to any of the breweries. Um, I went, hit Broadway during the day, so I didn't have to be okay. with all the crazies at oh. night. So oh, yeah, okay. it's, uh, well, maybe if I went there with other people, people other than my wife, then I might have been stuck at you know, and not stuck at, but at Broadway late at night, sitting in a corner, pounding <laughs> pounding old styles yourself. or something, or you know. Well, I ask because uh, I got married in December, and we did the bachelor party in Vegas, but uh-huh. many people. Now, young people are going to Nashville Ton instead of, of doing Vegas. Chris, yeah. I've done two bachelor yeah. parties in Vegas, and both yeah. of them were Nashville, terrific. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah, sorry, Still Nashville. Recovering? Vegas. I've done two in Nashville. Still recovering, though, right? Uh, pieces of me are gone forever, for sure. <laughs> there you go. Eric just left them in the bar. Yeah. We come back. Uh, we were. We'll talk a little bit more about. Um, the, you know, the Bulls played today. The White Sox and Cubs played yesterday, and there was uh, something interesting there. But I want to play you something that, you know, some of the youngsters may not have heard. Loyola's in the tournament. They actually won the tournament in 1963. We'll play that. We come back. It's Chris Black, Fred Hubner with you. 312-332-3776 here on ESPN 1000. Chicago's Game Day, only on ESPN 1000 at ESPNChicago.com. I'm easy like Sunday morning. Welcome back in. Chris Black, Fred Hubner with you. It is Selection Sunday. 
And uh, Chris, you were saying, you know, you got the, a tournament game, the SEC tournament game, and it's an early start. What are people going to do in between? And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people just tuning to Tiger Woods at that point. Yeah, and I, I think we should uh, get into it at some point, Fred. I know that uh, you want to talk some more college basketball. Yeah, just for a minute like, or so, yeah. You know, Tiger Woods is going to bring eyeballs to the TVs today. Whether or not he wins or finishes second, third, fourth, wherever he finishes, people are going to watch today. And watching yesterday, I watched about six holes, the end of his round, round three. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I'm not a golf on TV guy, but I am a watching Tiger Woods guy. So if he's there, I'm going to watch, and I'm kind of looking forward to it today. Yeah, I, I know other people are, and a lot of the people who work here, uh, Adam Dullivant and uh, Randy Merkin and uh, Carmen, uh, they're all going to be you know, into watching Tiger Woods. I know Waddle was say, looking forward to watching Tiger today, so they'll all get that opportunity as he starts just one shot off the lead, start of the tournament today. Now, let's be real. If he starts bogey, bogey, double bogey, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not participating. But if he's there at the turn going towards the end of the round and he's close in contention of course i'm gonna watch and fred you know that everyone's gonna be freaking out about it too oh yeah on social media yeah. every, i mean if he, you're not if you're not in. a golf fan or if you're not a tiger fan stay off twitter uh, yeah. later on today he chipped in yesterday and everyone lost their minds yeah so i mean i i'm excited and i think he's the one thing in sports now that everyone is interested in seeing. I'll just take off a lot of people. Hey, I chipped in from 24 yards out one time. You know, <laughs> well, so that's I, pretty good. You got soft hands. <laughs> yeah. I mean, every once in a while, you know, every once in a while you get lucky. But, yeah, hey, it would be, I guess for the sport it would be great if Tiger came back. I know, I'd love to know how the rest of the golfers feel about it. Because is it good for them? Because the, the sport will be getting more coverage and more eyes on it. And they will be seen? Or do they care uh, because all of it, you know, you'll, they'll get questions about how how do you feel playing with Tiger? How do you feel playing with Tiger? It'll all be about Tiger Woods and not about them necessarily. I'm guessing it would be an irritant. I think that they'd I think be so annoyed too. by it. And yeah. I think the young guys don't care because they think they're better than him because for the better part of the last, what, 10 years, they have been better than Tiger Woods. I was listening to you earlier and you said that he won, and this blew my mind, he won his last major in 08. Yeah, I've got it right here. Hold on. 2008? Is that possible? Yeah, it was ten, like years, ten ago? years ago. He's currently a 388th ranked golfer. Shouldn't he, hasn't he be on the senior while. store? Oh no, he's not yet. No, he's right? not old enough yet. <laughs> Close he's to getting it. there. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just uh, a fascinating story because the eyeballs will be there to watch him, but yeah. I don't think it will improve the game of golf. You know, like like a lot there of people. Are, there's talk a lot about, of young players that are really good. Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of young players, and you know, golf courses are starting to die off. You know. Yep. They, they have a hard time getting people to go out and participate in the sport and, and watch the events where Tiger's not doing well. So I think it's just a fun kind of nostalgic story to watch and we, see him try and win. We talk so much about you know baseball and the commissioner, Rob Manfred, trying to get millennials into the game. We're trying yeah. to cut down time and, you know, our, you know with Tiger playing golf and playing better. If Tiger gets better, is that going to bring millennials back to golf? No. That's a four-and-a-half to five-hour to six-hour event. No There's chance. not a chance. No. They may they may go out, out and buy the Tiger Woods video game, which I have. It is a lot of fun. Yeah. I like playing Pebble Beach from my couch. Yeah. I'd like to play Pebble Beach once, you know, not from my couch and yeah. actually out there. But, yeah, I mean, it's not going to bring more people. It's going to bring a lot more of the older golf fans to the, to the sport, and it's going to be something for them to watch and 
you know, uh, more power to him. I'm not going to watch that. I'll I'll find something else. Maybe there's another Saxer Cubs spring training game. I we'll talk more about that uh, 10:30 when we have my notebook. We have Kevin Arnovitz from ESPN, the NBA Insider. We'll talk a little bit about the MVP. But way back when, mm-hmm. I was a mere let's see, uh, six years old in 1963, um, and. The Loyola Ramblers got to the NCAA championship game, and it was close, all the way down to the wire. And this was the call from the great, he passed down recently, a couple of years ago, Red Rush, one of the greatest calls for NCAA basketball, the championship game, 1963. They're going to go for one. I don't think there's any question about it. 50 seconds, 49, 40, and this is a twist. Cincinnati, the team that always holds the ball. They're seeing what it feels like now. How does it feel? We'll find out in about 23 seconds because that's how much time's left in the ball game. I guarantee you one thing, they'll give it to Harkness when it's time. Nine, eight. Price has got it. Here he goes. He jumps. He passes out to Hunter. Hunter shoots off the rim. Brown gets the score. It's over. It's over. We won. We won the ball game. Viola won the ball game. Oh, we won. 60 to 58. Oh, one of the greatest calls in college basketball history. It's it, it's a long time ago. It was tough for us to find it. I've got copies. He goes on and he keeps going, we won, we won. <laughs> George Ireland is being hugged, kissed, and squeezed. George Ireland was the coach of that team for the Loyola Ramblers. 1963, they win the championship. They were in the tournament in 1983, or 83-84 season. Now, Frederick Hughes, Carl Golston. They played against Georgetown and Patrick Ewing. Ewing took a free throw on Carl Golston, the short little guard, 5-9 from the city. He walks past Ewing as Ewing gets the ball and goes to the free throw line and slaps him on the butt. Ewing looks at him like, <laughs> who is this little guy? And uh, that was fun. But Loyola, you know, Luke Canales, a graduate, uh, Je- our own Jeff Meller from Loyola, a lot yeah. of other people. I know Brian Wheeler who called the Loyola Ramblers in 83 and 84 when they went to the tournament. So good luck to Loyola wherever they go. We'll find that out later on today. NBA Talk, we come back. Fred Hubner, Chris Black. It is ESPN 1000. This is Chicago's Game Day, only on ESPN 1000 and ESPNChicago.com. Welcome back in. Fred Huebner along with Chris Black here with you till 12 noon. We'll get into some baseball bottom of the hour. Uh, next hour, talk some football. The uh, Cleveland Browns have been busy. I heard earlier today, I'm listening on the way in, uh, Peter, Peter, who's the guy? Peter Burns. Peter Burns. Best week he, ever. Well, he's talking about finding a team to follow. What what sports announcer or broadcaster or sports fan is doesn't have an NFL team to follow? I understand if you're looking for an EPL team to follow, but who doesn't have an and who doesn't have an NFL team to follow? Well, I could be wrong, but I think Peter Burns is a, of the SEC Network, so yeah. I think he's from the South. And uh, sometimes you're uh, just drunk on college football, right? And, and you need an NFL team to get you through Sundays. Yeah, it must be because he's looking for a team, and he was considering the Cleveland Browns, and Marcus Spears was trying oh. to tell him not to. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, he was. Let's talk some NBA. As um, well, the, hey, the Bulls played today, Atlanta. That should be a barn burner. Ugh. We'll talk about. Well, we probably won't talk about that one. Kevin Arnovich from ESPN, the NBA Insider, joining us here on ESPN One Thousand. Kevin, how are you today? I'm well. How are you? We're doing well. So, do you have an NFL team that you follow? <laughs> I grew up in Atlanta, 
So, but I'm 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 the ultimate Atlanta Fairweather fan. Like if the Falcons are six and two at the break, <laughs> sure. I'm kind of in for the rest of the season. Anything shy of that, I watch from a very remote corner of the world. And then you know if they make the playoffs, I sit down and watch a wild card game. But I, I am I am the personification of a Fairweathered Atlanta sports fan, and I'm, I'm kind of proud of that. And well, you I guys had the highs and lows over the last well, actually in one game. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the NBA season winding down here in Chicago. All we're talking about is tanking and where we're going to get picks. But there's uh, some interest at the top. A uh, couple of games on uh, ABC and ESPN later on today. Uh, Steph Curry going to miss another game. But they've got they got some. Uh, Steve Kerr tried to let everybody know the other day, didn't he? That uh, they still have some players that can play the game. Yeah, and this is now, the, and Steve Kerr's talked about this a lot, uh, you know, kind of both on and offline this year, which is the, the, the Warriors are now at the moment in their dynasty where, you know, their biggest obstacle in some sense is boredom, is just, I think the natural human nature to take a foot off a pedal when you've been assured, you know, you can assure yourself of a certain level of achievement even without trying at 100%. I mean, we forget how hungry they were in 2015 and 2016, you know, that second season during the streak. And, you know, it's, it's not that winning gets old, but, uh, you know, I mean, you, you contrast it with Houston, you know, a team that's trying to prove something uh, at every level, right? James Harden is trying to prove he's a superstar with Gravitas who can actually lead a team to a championship. Mike D'Antoni wants to prove to the world you can play this way and, and, and win, and the system can prevail. Uh, Chris Paul, obviously, is one of these guys who's one of the great point guards uh, in history. You know, there's always this murmur, hey, can he get past the second round? You know, what happens to point guards like that when, when, when play gets intensified in, in late May? And so, I mean, I think that's, that's sort of the great contrast. I mean, I'm actually somebody who believes I, I'm now kind of assured that it, I think Houston's every bit as talented right now. And um, I think they have something that works. I think they're adaptable. I think they can play in a series where, you know, the game is faster or smaller or dictated by the Warriors. I think they have matchups. Uh, to go against kind of a Draymond at the five line. But all the challenges that, that uh, the Warriors present, I think the Rockets have been constructed really to address them, not necessarily to win. But I, I think this is now a, I think it's the best non Warriors team during the Warriors four year reign. Yeah, that's a good way to put it because I think if you look at the last few years, the last 10 years, this might be the best two teams the league has had in one season that we've seen in quite some time. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there were, you know, I mean, when the Heat were on top of the world and the Spurs were playing their best basketball in 13 and 14, you know, that, that, that might be a good one. But yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, this is this, at least in the Western Conference. I mean, I, the Spurs a couple of years ago were very, we forget they were exceptionally regular season and, and were a really good team. But yeah, I mean, I think, the, but the, yeah, but they were specifically constructed this Rockets team to address this. And, and they're very, you know, the funny thing is, is, uh, they'll, they'll absolutely confess it. Um, you know, just that they absolutely we are responding to the Warriors. This wasn't one. Of, we're not we're not being coy about this. But, hey, we're going to go out there and give it our best, and you know we play our game. No, they they are specifically saying we will play the Warriors game. We have constructed a counter to this. So, Kevin, when you look at the Houston Rockets offensively, you know a lot of people kind of point to the fact that like they basically run the same couple of set principles over and over and over again, and it's tough for teams to defend it because they're so good. What has made James Harden and the ability to do that pick and roll so special for Houston? I mean, so and this is kind of the funny thing with 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 Houston and then kind of the Mike D'Antoni movement. And in some ways, it's funny. It's it's a principle very much operated like like the Warriors, who certainly have they have set calls they will throw out there. But, but the understanding is when you have players with Hall of Fame decision making powers like 
Chris Paul and James Harden. Like, best leave it to them. Like, I, I think this, the, the Mike D'Antoni's notion has always been that the, the, the league suffers from overcoaching. And that actually, if you put the fate of a possession in the hands of the players, you're going to get better results. This spread pick and roll, obviously we saw it first kind of in, well, we saw it kind of Phoenix and, and to some extent, I guess, Stan Van Gundy in Orlando with, with Dwight Howard and, and Jameer Nelson, but, but with this kind of personnel, which is if you spread the floor and you give, you have three shooters. So, so at this point, if you help off one of those shooters, you know, everyone's like, you need to send the help, you need to send the help. The, the cost of that was always marginal because, uh, well, if you send the help from that guy, you can't shoot. You put five players on the floor, four of whom who can shoot. The other one is Clint Capella diving down the lane athletically at 40 miles per hour as a seven-feet-tall guy, ready to catch a lob from the best passer in NBA history, Chris Paul. You know, that's a problem. James Harden is, you know, we, we kind of came to see isolation as a bad thing. Iso Joe, kind of marginal superstars who kind of just pound the ball. Carmelo Anthony at his worst. The thing with Harden is when you look at the stats, an isolation play for James Harden is about as lethal as it gets in this league in the half court. Um, because he can step back, he can hit those shots. I mean, even watching the Toronto game the other night when they finally had their streak broken. I mean, there, there's literally no defense for it. But as you say, by you can't scout that because they have instincts, because they react to the defense, because they wait for the defense to make an error, which the defense ultimately will, either by overplaying Capella on the dive, either by trying to trap Harden and Paul, and good luck with that, because now you're playing four on three as a defense, because they can beat any trap. I mean, these are NBA players, you know, it's not the NCAA. And so, I mean, that's what just makes it completely impossible to defend. And so pick your poison, and the Rockets, for the first time, really have enough poison. You know, because P.J. Tucker can hit a shot. I mean, leave that guy open. He's a 40%, probably greater than 40% if, if there isn't a defender within three or four feet of him. You know, same with Luke Bamute, a guy who was kind of a journeyman in the league. You know, learn to execute a few crucial skills and can work within that offense. You know, I mean, having Joe Johnson is going to be, I think, a revelation in the playoffs because there are going to be moments they don't want Capella. Now they can move Bamute to the five. It's this, I think this is sort of the rule of this era of basketball, which is can you be, if you can you do a lot of different things? Can you win as a big team? Yes. Can you win as a slow team? Yes. Can you win as a small team? Yes. And I think the Rockets have created the personnel in a roster that can, if whatever you want to play, if you're the Warriors, they can match up. Kevin Arnovich from ESPN NBA Insider joining us here on ESPN 1000 here on the studio Hot Rods Hotline. Let's look at the East for a second. And um, Chris is the big NBA guy. I I, I watch, um, but the Cleveland the Cleveland Cavaliers <laughs> the Cleveland the Cleveland Cavaliers when when they completely shuffled their their team and got rid of six guys and brought in four, they had some success. They're five and five now in the last ten games. And they play the Lakers later on tonight. It's, it's basically, let's try to convince LeBron James to decide with us next year's. That, that's what they're all out for in Los Angeles. But it, are there people in the East that do Toronto and Boston, maybe even some of the other teams, see Cleveland as this is the year to jump on them because they're still not ready to put this together as a team? Or they still have LeBron and they're still going to end up being the team to come out of the East? I mean, this is the gamut now, which is, Look, Cleveland's going to be the three seed. They're going to be in a conference semifinal series with the Boston Celtics. And LeBron has notoriously during this era, whether in Miami or Cleveland, said, you know, I can take home court advantage back at any series in 48 minutes. And when, you know, when the chips are down, they'll clear their throat for the next month. 
you know, figure out how to integrate George Hill as point guard, figure out if they can play Nance as the center, which is an unorthodox decision, but, but Nance is a really intuitive player and, you know, can do a lot of things and let's focus on what he can do. And then ultimately they will be fine. Um, I think there are those of us who are just, I, this is my skepticism. I have no doubt that they'll be able to score. They will. Um, I, I just, and I was at the game the other night in Los Angeles. I mean, they're just not a team that defends with any set of principles, and it's still a problem. I mean, I think they're better. I think Hill's a better defender, obviously, than Isaiah uh, or anyone else at the guard. Um, I think Nance gives full effort and is pretty smart, but uh, this is going to be the problem. And even when you integrate Love back in, I mean, that's not necessarily an antidote to bad defense. So, I mean, this is the problem for me. It's not, you know, everyone's going, well, can they figure out how to play with each other? They're doing fine. Offensively, they're fine. It, this, it's can they defend at a world-class level. This is what makes it so difficult. And I remember these conversations with the Cleveland team against Atlanta a few years ago. You know, they were like a 20th-ranked defense. And historically, you look at the record and say no team like that has ever advanced to the finals. And what happens with LeBron's teams? Miraculously, they float through the first six months of the season. We think we know they can't defend, and they don't defend with any principles. And we have conversations like this in March. Sure enough, you turn the lights on in April, and all of a sudden they become one of the best defenses in the league because LeBron is engaged and everybody else is engaged. And, and so this is why I find them the most difficult team in pro sports to predict. Because I just don't know what I'm getting from time to time. I don't know if LeBron is the really smart, genius prodigy who doesn't study for any of his finals, kind of goes in with a pencil, and then aces the test, even though he hasn't done any of the coursework. And that's essentially who he is. And so it makes it really hard. I mean, I'm ready to bury them, and it's like I forget. Like, this is LeBron. Right, that they'll figure out the defensive piece. Boston isn't a great offense; they're a league average offense. Then Cavs will have an answer. So that's what makes it so hard. Is I, I don't know, you know, if this failure to defend is a congenital thing for this team, or if it's just a, the usual LeBron springtime. Hey, we'll do it when we have to do it. Kevin, that's a great point that you make about the way LeBron goes about the seasons. But like the the one thing that I kind of look at is then okay, say they get through the Eastern Conference. Last season, LeBron was probably at his best in the NBA Finals, yet that was not good enough. And I think last year's team, the Cavs, are better than this group. So, like, even if they can get through the East, I I don't think they stack up with either the Rockets or the Warriors in the Finals. I don't think they're anywhere close. I think it's going to be a very – I think the Western Conference Finals this season – I mean, look, a lady series of LeBron can be fun because there'll be intrigue and all that. But in terms of sheer competitive basketball, I mean, I think get ready for the Western Conference Finals as you're sort of, you know, one of those years where the Final Four, that, that one part of the bracket is just a better Final Four game on Saturday than you'll ever see on Monday night. I mean, that's kind of how I am approaching this season. I mean, and again, not because any, I mean, the Finals with LeBron is always fun, but I'm with you. I, and this is why, you know, you hear rumors of, hey, let's recede after, you know, the, 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 the second round of the NBA playoffs and forget conferences. I mean, because this is going to be it. I mean, I think this is going to be one of the best Western Conference finals, and it might be one of the least memorable NBA finals in recent history. Yeah, it's going to be weird to see, especially with a player of LeBron's magnitude being a part of just another blowout uh, back-to-back finals. Okay, sticking in the Eastern Conference, so Friday night, excellent ball game. The Rockets and the Raptors, and the Raptors are one of the teams that I've been so impressed with this season because they're in the top five of offensive efficiency and defensive efficiency. Why have the Raptors been so successful this season leading the Eastern Conference? You know, I, I, I think there are a couple things at work, and I've really enjoyed watching them this year, and that wasn't the case in previous seasons. I mean, what is a, it's a cliche in the NBA, but I really truly believe it is continuity matters. 
And I think when teams and coaches and systems just sort of marinate for year after year after year, they're, they're really, I mean, we forget like the Indiana Pacers a few years ago, that team with Paul George and David West and George Hill. Like, people forget they took the LeBron heat to like a game seven. And the year before, they, they, they played a really competitive series. And why? I think simply just kind of sticking around and knowing each other and knowing the personnel and, and so much of the NBA, it's not the fun part, but if you talk to coaches on a regular basis and players, is just that telepathy that good defensive teams have, as you say, they're a top five defensive team. Well, why? Because Kyle Lowry's like five feet 11, and DeMar DeRozan's not a great defender, and Valanciunas is kind of slow, and well, how are they defending so well? Well, because they have a really you know, good defensive system, and they kind of know intuitively which each person can do and can't do, and they become one of those organizations that like, I think has kind of identified their players, all of whom are imperfect, but each of whom, and let's focus on what each guy can do individually and not what they can't do. Valanciunas is a perfect example. We saw it the other night. Like, for years, they were sort of murmuring, that, oh, you know, like, Valanciunas, can't really play him in this situation or that situation. And finally, it's just like, look, what can this guy do well? All right, let's put him in a position to succeed. Oh, DeMar DeRozan can't hit the three. Well, you're never going to be able to stretch the floor to the extent you need to to be a top-five offense with a big dominant wing, who, you know, a ball-dominant wing who can't hit the three. Well, all right. DeMar, work on your three a little bit. You know, get us to 34%, and we'll figure it out from here. And, you know, and then you just have, you know, you populate your roster with, like, really smart, good bench players. That bench unit they have is, like, destroying the league. You know, it's like, I think they're, what, 30 points per possession or per 100 possession better than the league? I mean, they are basically, you know, ending, ending first quarters with five-point leads and then stretching them to 12 every night. And right. it's just how you blow out the league. And it, it's just so, why Fred VanVleet, you know, non-drafted point guard. He's, in, he's incredible. And again, is he an all-purpose guard? No. He can do a few things really well. And so they're kind of becoming Spursy in that way. And that's why I think like really good teams. It's just like, yeah, these, there's no top five player on this roster. In fact, everybody's kind of slightly above average at their position with the exception of one or two guys. But you know what? We're not going to ask anybody to do anything they can't do. You know, we're not going to ask, you know, Jonas Valanciunas to be DeAndre Jordan. We're not going to, you know, we're not, we're not going to ask Norman Powell to be you know, LeBron James. We're just going to basically, you know, just take each person's strengths and accentuate them within well, the confines of a good system. Yeah, and Kevin, and like you mentioned, the way they stretch out those leads in regular season games, that's why they're playing so well, but sometimes that doesn't correlate to playoff success. How do you see them matching up against Cleveland if they met each other in the Eastern Conference Finals? I mean, one thing I like about them is they just have great size. And Cleveland, for all, you know, one of the failings here for Cleveland defensively in terms of personnel is that they're just small. And, you know, LeBron plays big, and he can play big. And we've seen areas where, you know, he will essentially function in the center. But, like, you know, they can throw a Baca, who, by the way, can stretch the floor as a center. They can give you Valanciunas, a more conventional post guy. Jacob Pearl is one of the smartest young bigs in this league right now. Um, I mean, he's not another worldly talent, but... He does exactly what you need him to do, which is screen, rescreen, become a problem, protect the rim, uh, move well defensively as a pick and roll defender. And so, I just they remind me of Houston in this respect. They're one of those adaptable, you know, superpower, you know, superpower twin to activate a small team, a big team, <laughs> a stretchy team, an inside team. Like, like, what do you need from the Raptors on a given night? Oh, you want them to be big? Guess what? They'll put two bigs out there, and one of them will be a Baca who can stretch the floor as essentially a four. Oh, you want them to be small? Well, they got a ton of these athletic wings. Um, you know, Delon Wright, you can throw in there, who's just stretching. You know, C.J. Miles can play the four. You know, you can do whatever you want to 
with that roster. I mean, to me, this is sort of the, the hallmark of today's era in the NBA. Is to be an elite team, how many different versions of yourself can you be effectively? You know, and that's the problem for Cleveland. To those of us who are skeptical, is like, hey, as good as LeBron is, I mean, they're just going to have problems. And Toronto can, hey, against against Boston, they can play that five out game if they want to. Against you know Cleveland, if they want to go bigger and just bully them and just destroy them on the boards and you know defend the rim, they can do that too. You know, and that's what I kind of really like about them. But we'll see. You're right. I mean, they have been notoriously chokers um, when it's mattered. Uh, you know, in terms of performance in the playoffs. Um, I don't like to use past as the prediction of the future just because invariably everything's true until it isn't. And maybe this is the year of the Raptors. And they just feel differently, though, to me. They just feel, even the other night, that was a playoff game, essentially, yeah. in terms of spirit and mood. And they were just poised. And I love the pass that, you know, DeMar DeRozan gave Fred Van Fleet the other night. You know, how many, you know, that, that to me is such a symbol of where a team is. Like, you know, for listeners who don't know, I mean, they, they had a last possession situation against Detroit, and of course the ball is going in the hands of your superstar, DeMar DeRozan. He's dribbling into traffic, and you've seen this a million times. The guy's going to try to be a hero and try to beat one on five. Instead, he dishes it out to an undrafted backup point guard, Fred Van Vliet, who nails the shot and wins the game. Trust. That's what elevates teams to elite level, and I just think Toronto kind of has it. We're talking with uh, Kevin Arnovitz a couple more minutes here on ESPN 1000, and you were talking about DeMar DeRozan, and Chris has brought him up a couple times, and it ties into one of your latest articles talking about the MVP, uh, obviously Harden on top and James right there, but you look at other guys on the bottom, you know, as your list grows, I mean, Lillard's jumping in, Giannis, uh, Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, uh, the, the race for this is almost more interesting than the race for, you know, some of the top spots in the league. Yeah, I mean, I'm afraid of to those looking for a really fun race. I mean, I think Hart's running away with it for two reasons. I mean, one is, you know, there's two components to this award, right? One is, you know, the stat, the resume, you know, can you show me you, you, you've done things numerically that other players haven't or you're in the lead company. And the second is the narrative, right? Which is people like, it's kind of like the Oscars. Like, they, they like the good story, right? And, and to me, this is where Harden, if you, and if you're a player who has both events kind of locked down the way Harden does this year, you know, I think we're seeing a race for second place because, look, you know, for those who say, oh, you have to have team success. Well, the Rockets are on top of the league. Well, you have to have individual success. I mean, Harden's numbers speak for themselves. Um, he's grown. You know, I think for many years, Harden was sort of this guy. Yeah, he's a top five player, but he's, you know, he doesn't play defense. He's not really a leader. You hear what Kevin McHale says. He's kind of a, you know, like, yeah, the beard's cute, but it's not real gravitas. He doesn't play with the intensity of a Westbrook. He doesn't play with the joy of a Curry. You know, he's a great player, yeah. But now the, the narrative with James is, oh, no longer is that true. Like, this guy is every bit as serious and lethal and committed to winning and doing what his team requires. And, oh, Chris Paul's coming in. And we forget that as recently as five months ago, smart basketball people would tell you, hey, it may not work. You know, they both need the ball in their hands. And, Mike D'Antoni likes to run, and Harden likes to dribble and kind of pound the ball. Well, I mean, what an expression of sort of individual leadership to say, yeah, I know I've always played this way, but I'm going to make accommodations. I think voters like to see that. I am a voter for this award, and I think that services him well, too. So, unfortunately, I'd love for this to be an interesting race. Last year was amazing. You had the best sports bar debate you know, in years of these three guys, all of whom were different, Westbrook, Harden, and Kawhi Leonard. This year, I'm Pretty sure it's pretty much a lockdown with an interesting race for second place. But 
when you start debating second place in an MVP race, you've kind of gone through the rabbit hole. There are about like 11 people who care about that conversation, I think. <laughs> well, one of them is sitting right here, Chris. Yeah, right? and, uh, you, know, you and I. <laughs> yeah, you, so yeah, like, yeah. And then the other nine guys. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> You only got to find nine more. Hey, before we let you go, how do you find time to do your uh, Top Chef recap on the Pack Your Knives podcast? Oh, you make time for a Top Chef recap. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I, this is a, you know, it's funny. I, I just, it, as, as competition reality shows go, I think Top Chef is, is, is the best. And, and uh, you know, I do it with Tom Haberstroh, uh, former colleague at ESPN. He's still, he's still one of the best basketball writers around. And, um, you know, we, was, we always talk about him. I remember, like someone, we would talk about it the way we talk about the NBA, like sports fans. Because I think what these chefs do, if you go to some of these chef-driven restaurants, like to me, it's like LeBron. Sure. Like, how do you? I mean, I try to cook at home. I'm okay. You know, I might do some decent work, but what these people do like and do it like for a hundred people at a time every night. It's like so. Like, what have we talked about this top this chef competition? The way we talked about a basketball competition, and that was sort of the the origins of Pack Your Knives, our our, our top chef podcast. So. Uh, you know, you watch on Thursday night, you make some notes. I, I watch it again like a ball game. I watch film, you know, and then you, you get <laughs> what, your what stuff nice, ready. And you, what a nice cut. Yeah, you, you, you chart the I plays. Mean, yeah. You see about the, the, how, how impoverished my life is. I, <laughs> I sit around and do this stuff. But, uh, and that, that was sort of the origin of the podcast is let's, let's, let's cover Top Chef the way we cover the NBA. And uh, it's just been a lot of fun. That's it. I never let my pan get that hot. I got to let my pan get yeah. hot enough. Oh, I can yeah, see that. We, we, we just had the championship. We were like, why did you raise it? You, have <laughs> it. you know, like that was sort of the, the, the conversation. That's cool. Very cool. Kevin Arnovitz, ESPN NBA Insider. <laughs> thanks a lot for jumping out with us for a few minutes, okay? Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks. Kevin Arnovich from ESPN, Fred Hubner, Chris Black here with you. And, uh, yeah, every, see, it, it's great too, because everybody's got, um, their thing away from sports, oh, okay? Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, in my opinion, too many people at ESPN have The Bachelor. Well, because I'm afraid to be a good company man, you would watch The Bachelor no, on ABC. No, I weekly. watch enough ABC stuff, yeah. okay. but I'm not going to watch The Bachelor. Okay, that's okay? I got. I'm watching The Voice, which is an NBC show. Well, uh, you know, the, the Bachelor commentary on sports radio is a bit uh, trendy. I guess to say, to say the least. Uh, see, my my thing uh, that I could do a side podcast on would be the Vanderpump Rules. Okay, uh, because I watch <laughs> it when it's on, and then usually Bravo's on in the background because my wife watches Bravo. It's yep. the only channel she watches, so they rerun the Vanderpumps, and uh, I could give you a whole rundown on Jax and all the nonsense with James and you know every every person, Lisa Vanderpump yeah. and. My wife was, and, and my wife was never into yeah. the housewives, and now she watches almost all of them. All right, I, I, yeah. I could talk with Pat yeah. about all the there housewives as well. All the housewives, yeah. yeah I watch you once in a while. It's amazing how much money they have and how crazy they still are. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. But every city, yeah. though, it's not just Beverly Hills or right. New York no, and no. Atlanta, and then you just keep adding them on. One of them, I can't remember where, but um, Orange County. One of the wives was, it might have been Orange County, was uh, Jim Edmonds' wife, yeah. the former outfielder yeah. for the Cubs she and is. everybody else. And yeah, yeah. so interesting. He's on the show. We uh, <laughs> kind of a jerk. Yes. on the show. Yeah, does not care that no. he's in front of cameras. Not at uh, all. Doesn't really treat her well <laughs> whatsoever. Uh, but I think it works out for her. I think See? she enjoys the marriage. But a quick thumbnail on, yeah, on I, the I can tell on Jim you all Edmonds. about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we come back. I'll give you my Major League Baseball notebook. Tra things happening throughout, not with the White Sox, not with the Cubs, but they did play each other yesterday. We'll talk about that and more. You want to jump in? Three one two three three two three seven seven six. Chris Black, Fred Hubner on ESPN One Thousand. Jim Edmonds. 
This is Chicago's Game Day, only on ESPN 1000 at ESPNChicago.com. And the ball driven to left center. Sousa. He's got it! He's got it! It's a no-hitter! Fred goes around the horn. It's a triple play for the Sox. Touch them all, Joe! You'll never hit a bigger home run in your life. Fred's Baseball Notebook. Oh, welcome on in, Chris Black, Fred Hubner. Time for my baseball notebook and uh, talk about big home runs. Uh, I know it was a preseason game, spring training, spring preseason. training game, Fred. Come on, yeah, get pumped, you're a White training. Sox fan. It was a spring training game, but uh, this guy had begged Ricky Renteria to let him play. <laughs> Eli Jimenez said the day before. He said on Friday, "I begged Ricky to let me play against the Cubs." And Renteria said, no, he's going to start on Sunday. He's not going to play. But Eloy Jimenez did come in to pinch hit yesterday against the Cubs. Jimenez gets a hold of this one to right center field. Jimenez leaves the ballpark. Welcome back, Eloy Jimenez. The Sox lead 4-3. to three. He's going to be scary. He's going to be scary. Steve Stone, Jason Benetti on the call on uh, Channel 9 yesterday. Jimenez had missed some time with uh, left knee tendonitis. And it was an interesting game yesterday for a spring training game. As you saw, Lucas Giolito, he went four-plus innings. He allowed a run on two hits. He walked two and struck out eight, including the first four guys he faced. Jason Hayward in the leadoff spot. Chris Bryant, Ben Zobrist, and Kyle Schwarber. He also, I think, caught Schwarber a little bit later on in the game uh, looking. And then one of the times he caught him looking, Schwarber for the game, uh, one for three. Um, the game finished a 4-4 tie. Uh, and it, it was just interesting. Um, Yolmer Sanchez, I'm telling you, you change your name, you can hit the ball. He went three hits <laughs> yesterday. That was nice. For the Cubs... Kyle Hendricks was as good, if not, well, he was as good as uh, Giolito. Four innings, four plus. He gave up two runs, five hits, no walks. He struck out seven. And not necessarily known as a strikeout guy, but I think on TV last night I was watching one of the highlights, and they showed every one of his strikeouts. It was boom, boom, and the ball was moving all over. He he looked really, really good. So those are good things. The uh, baseball starts, I want to say, in 18 days now. Uh, well, actually, I can tell you exactly. Today is today is the 11th. First game is the 29th. So, yeah, 18 days from now, there'll be baseball. The Cubs will be in Miami. The White Sox will be in uh, Kansas City. Uh, other notes from those two, Nate Jones, four scoreless appearances for the White Sox. For the Cubs, Carl Edwards, another scoreless uh, inning. His scoreless streak is now uh, four innings. No walks in those four innings. And, Chris, you remember last year during mm-hmm. down the stretch, uh, and in the playoffs, he could not get the ball over the plate. They couldn't hit him, but yeah. he couldn't get the ball over the plate. Especially against the Dodgers in the yep. NLCS. Um, I want to ask you, Lucas Giolito strikes out eight. For you, you're a good White Sox fan. What do you expect from Giolito this season? Well, you know, last the second half of last season, after the All-Star break, he was seventh in baseball in ERA. He had a, I think it was a 238 ERA. He pitched very, very well. So it wasn't just September. It was the second half of the season. Uh, he seems like he's a guy that has learned from his time coming back from injuries. And, you know, last year, you know, when he got an opportunity with Washington, he was throwing his fastball. He was getting rocked. Now he's he's throwing everything. He's looking good. So I'm expecting, I don't know how many, how many innings he's going to, he's going to, uh, he's going to be one of their starting five. 
maybe 160, 170 innings. I don't think he's going to get to 200. And I don't know. Wins is, what, what am I always told as an old-timer? They always tell me wins is an overrated stat when it comes to pitching. But, you know, if he can he can win his share and have a nice ERA, that'd be great. Uh, he's going to have some help behind him. Defensively, there's still a, t- a work in progress. The End of the season, where is he ranked amongst the pitching staff? On the White Sox pitching yeah. staff? Um Boy, he should be one or two. Okay. Yeah. I think that'll uh, be a pretty good season, right? Yeah, they still have James Shields. Rodon's going to be there. Uh, Miguel Gonzalez is going to pitch quite a bit. Uh, I love Ronaldo Lopez. I saw, the, I saw the last week of the season, I saw Ronaldo Lopez for the White Sox pitch against the Angels. First inning, he struck out Trout and Pujols. Yeah. And I said, well, that's a nice way to get things started at home in the final week of the season. So he pitched very well. He's a guy that when the White Sox made the trade, they could have brought him up last year to be either a starter or a, a guy in the bullpen. They decided not to until later in the year and had him work at, at his game in the minors. And I think now he's ready to actually make a nice step. So with Giolito and with Lopez, and then you have maybe Fulmer, um, you have Miguel Gonzalez, uh, Hector Santiago, a guy the White Sox used to have, a left-hander. They brought him back, and he's pitching real well. He's had stints in L.A. and uh, some other places, so that's a good thing. But, I mean, the Cubs get to face um, Oakland today. Hugh Darvish plays and pitches, so this, I think, will be his second outing. Um, Shohei Otani, speaking of Hugh Darvish, Shohei Otani, a perfect uh, uh, transition. Six runs, three innings in a B game to, on Friday. 60 pitches, five hits, six strikeouts. In three starts, he struck out 16. He's given up 10 runs in six innings. There was also a report earlier this week that numerous people have seen Otani hit. Yeah. And they say he's not going to be a two-way player because he can't <laughs> He can't hit. After all this, Fred. Yeah, I know. They said that he's not going to be the hitter that people thought he was going to be. Now, we'll see what the Angels are going to do because they spent the money to get him and they, they expect to be him, have him as a two-way player. But... There was, I can't. I didn't re, uh, read all the articles because there were several and several experts saying that it doesn't look like he's a guy that's going to be able to hit and be a two-way guy. So eventually he'll just be a pitcher. And uh, there are people that are also thinking that I saw Darvish. I think he was talking about it. That they were talking about the Cubs should be a team that has a six-man rotation instead yeah, of a five-man rotation. I think that was uh, written on uh, NBC Sports Chicago yeah. yesterday right. too. Right. Um, because that's uh, where I saw it. What was it? Uh, the Rays are looking at four man rotation, four man rotation, right? And that the Cubs should adapt to six man. One last thing about Otani: I have not watched Angels pre uh, tra- spring training games, but I have seen the highlights. Yeah, in uh, it looks as if he is way overmatched at the plate. Yeah, yeah, so, he does. So he looks... What you've heard sounds completely right because yeah. he's like striking out. He's not even close. Yeah, he doesn't look good at the plate, and it's going to be. It, 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 I was upset originally that he signed with the Angels only because if he was as good as everyone said he was, we wouldn't see him that much because we don't see Trout that much. Yeah. And he's the, the, quote, supposed best player in baseball. We don't see him that much. Now we're not going to see Otani that much. So you think maybe they put him on TV, but they play so many late games. The uh, Twins yesterday signed Lance Lynn. Lance Lynn, one-year deal, $12 million. That means that Arietta and Cobb are still out there and available. The Twins... This offseason have brought in Lance Lynn, first baseman D.H. Logan Morrison, reliever Addison Reed, reliever Fernando Rodney, reliever Zach Duke, pitcher Michael Pineda, 
Annabelle Sanchez, who they just released today. They brought him in and they released him already. And also outfielder Chris Heisey. They spent $55 million bringing in those eight players, nine players, counting Lynn. And Buster only reported today that was 38% of what the Padres paid to Eric Hosmer. <laughs> so <laughs> you get nine play, or you get eight players for what the Padres paid for one guy. So the Twins, they win 85 games last year. They get to the playoffs. Um, clearly spending money to continue to try and go for it, Minnesota Twins. Yeah. Uh, where, where do you think they kind of fit in? They're not as good as the Indians. They're not as good as the Astros. Not as good probably as the Red Sox, the Yankees. Are they that next team, that next tier? They're getting there. I mean, they were they were a team that, with Paul Molitor, they thought, you thought two years ago they were going to make that big push, and then they had a bad year. Last year they came back, and Byron Buxton showed he won a gold glove. He's starting to be able to hit the ball and figure out how to hit at, the, at this level. Uh, they've got some other really good young players. Their pitching staff now with some additions, um, you know, with Lance Lynn, and you got a bullpen with Addison Reed and Fernando Rodney, and uh, Logan Morrison's going to be a big add-on. So I, I, I actually think, because Cleveland has has injuries all the time. Danny Salazar is not going to start the season for them. They they always have some injuries. And I think, um, who is their other outfielder that's always hurt? Michael Brantley. I think he's oh. still hurt again. I don't think he's ready to start the season. And that's a terrible thing because he's a really good player. Um, one other thing, Mike Moustakis uh, passed his physical. He uh, got his one-year $6.5 million deal with the Royals. All he needed to sign was his qualifying offer with the Royals. And he would have made seventeen million this year, so he's making uh, ten and a half less than he would have made. Now, also, it was reported by many people the other day that he had an offer of three years, forty-five million with the Angels, and then Buster only reported yesterday that he had never received another offer uh, from the Angels, and now it's come out that this was the only offer Mike Mustakis has received. The one, the one year deal he got from the Royals, which is a little surprising for a guy that hit 38 homers last year. Very surprising, and it's it goes back to this whole conversation of the entire offseason. It's surprising that there are talented, good veteran players still just yeah. on the market. Yeah, I, 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 I think baseball players should understand one thing: owners don't want to spend four or five year deals or three or four year deals even on guys in their thirties. Yeah. Uh, they'll be more than happy to pay him one or two year deals. You would think, but when you have Scott Boris as an agent, you know, that Scott's going to want a three or four year deal. You're going to say, okay, well, we're not going to make you an offer because you're not going to accept what we, what we want. Yeah. You kind of have to have the mindset that if the money's there, take it then Yeah, because right. Mustakis, you, you lose out on the $10 million. You right. could have signed the qualifying offer. You could have, had that money and you lose out on it going into free agency. I'm not sure what's going to happen with uh, which Arietta. Well, here, here's what we're going to do, Fred. You know what will happen? We'll sign with the Cubs for one year. A show me deal. One year, get a fair deal, and now the Cubs will have a stacked. Then you have to go six man rotation, yeah, don't you? Six men. All pitching the Cubs back to the World Series. That's what's going to happen. Wouldn't that be the greatest Cub story for all the Cub fans out there? I think their pitching staff's pretty damn good now, but the addition of Arietta would be great. <laughs> Callers, hang in there. We got to take a quick break. We get right back to you. Three one two three three two three seven seven six. Want to talk some Sox and or Cubs baseball? Top of the hour. We're going to talk some football. Lots going on. Free agency begins this week officially on Wednesday. The Bears uh, have not done much but put the transition tag on Kyle Fuller. So we'll talk about that in the 11 o'clock hour. Chris Black, Fred Hubner with you here on ESPN. This is Chicago's Game Day only on ESPN 1000 at ESPNChicago.com. 
Welcome back in. Fred Huebner along with Chris Black. We're here till noon talking some football next hour. And uh, there'll be a lot of football talk um, this week with uh, free agency. And uh, we got to get into the Richard Sherman signing. I, I don't know. I'm a 49ers guy. I don't quite understand it. Uh, also, we'll get into all the things the Cleveland Browns did. Uh, John Ledyard will join us from FanRag Sports, their NFL draft analyst. And we'll take a look at the draft. And you would think now, after um, after Cleveland went out and got Tyrod Taylor, that they're definitely going to take a quarterback, a young guy, first or fourth. Um, so I guess that's a good thing. I'm just not sure how many quarterbacks are really going to go before the Bears pick at eight. So that's yeah, it's a good question, Fred. And the Browns having two picks in the top five now they can get a quarterback for the future. And they can get Saquon Barkley if they want. If they want. One. Yeah. And you add him to Tyrod Taylor, Jarvis Landry. Now you have, a pretty, Gordon. You have a pretty decent offense yeah. for the Cleveland Browns. So it'll yeah. be interesting to see. Yeah, it'll be fun. I know Marcus Spears was talking earlier today uh, before we came on uh, talking about that that squad and some of the things that uh, they're going to be building. And uh, he was still, you know, it is still Cleveland. Uh, but they they can definitely win some games, which is better than they've done in the past. Uh, quickly, let's get back to our baseball conversation. We go to the River North area, and Matt, you're on ESPN 1000. Hey, Matt. Hey, fellas. I had a question for you guys. Um, I knew Greg Ritchie. He's a good friend of mine. He was a White Sox AAA batting coach when he won the World Series, then he went on to the Pirates. And I was talking to him about the White Sox because he's a big fan, and he was like, you know, they should have gone in on Eric Hosmer. Uh, he believes he's a better player than Abreu, and Abreu could DH then. Because his line of thinking is, Hosmer could beat you in more than one way. Abreu could just beat you one way. If he doesn't hit, he's useless. You know, he, he's slow, and he's not a very good glove. But as a DH, you know, then you have the lefty batter that you, the Sox desperately need. You know, they, they don't have any lefty sticks. And when was the last time they had a good one? Yeah, they haven't had one for a left, a good left-handed hitter for a while. You bring up some good points, Matt. I appreciate the call. Um, it, it would have made sense for them because I don't know that a seven-year deal would have made sense in one aspect. They didn't want to spend all that money on a guy like that because they're building their team from, you know, uh, from within and draft picks and things like that and trades that they've made. And I, I think they were a year away from bringing in a Hosmer. But if you were going to bring Hosmer in for seven years, well, that's another story. I mean, then he then he would be here, obviously, for any rebuild. Uh, and, and the caller brought up great points too. Matt brought up great points. The Sox really don't have any left-handed hitters. Um, they got a couple of switch hitter guys, but they don't have any left-handed hitters. And the thing about Abreu is, he's gotten better at first base. He's not going to be. He'll never be as good as Eric Hosmer is. Um, it is interesting. I'd like to know if Rick Kahn and the White Sox ever even discussed it. I would think they did because they played against Eric Hosmer enough. Well, Fred, it's not that point in the rebuild to be spending like yeah. that. You know, a guy like Hosmer, he was one of the few free agents, you know, especially position players who were able to get out and get a big contract this yeah. offseason. Yeah. So if he's going to go out and do that, that meant the White Sox would have had to match a seven-year offer right. to get Eric Hosmer. I mean... Is that really that much of an upgrade? I know a lefty bat in the lineup that they could use, but Abreu last year was a 4.7 war player, where Hosmer was a 4.0 war yeah. player. So it's not like yeah. 
he would have been some great upgrade. Well, yeah, and you got to read, and the caller in the seven years, right? So. The caller wasn't saying to get rid of Abreu. I think Abreu is going to be here. I think they're going to sign into an extension um, before they end up moving her, him or getting rid of him. Uh, and he can he can be that DH. A lot of teams nowadays aren't. Um, they don't just have one DH. Yeah. They rotate their DHs. Give a guy a break in the field and have him DH. Or give a guy a break at first base and then have him DH at times. So I think that's what the White Sox are going to do. I See, I don't... A lot of teams, like the Cubs, they developed all their uh, position players in the minors, and they had to go out and get pitching. The White Sox seem to have a ton of pitching where they may need that final spot. And I think... I know people may laugh. I think that the White Sox are really going to make a big push for Manny Machado. Right. A and, huge push. And, for, and that's where, yeah, yeah. Hosmer and um, Abreu could both play. And I wasn't meaning an upgrade in that sense. I was saying, like, if you're going to go out and spend in free agency, don't waste all your chips on Eric Hosmer. This, you're not there yet. Right. Wait another year. Go after Machado. Wait the next year. Go after that big. You know I mean? Right. I wouldn't think it's it's worth it to go after Eric Cosmer. Let the Padres overspend for him. Let him go out there to San Diego. You don't need him. In well, and, and you know, and and I agree with you. I didn't think they needed him, and I really didn't think they needed Mike Mustakas. That that went mm-hmm. on for two or three weeks, saying yeah. that the White Sox should get Mike Mustakas or Carlos Gonzalez because after you know just sign him to one year deal and then you can flip him. Okay, well, what you're going to do is you're going right. to prevent him from you're going to prevent one of your younger guys from playing. Either Matt Davidson's going to get less at bats or Yolmer Sanchez is going to get less at bats and people say well, Yolmer Sanchez what's he going to be Yolmer Sanchez could be a guy that will be with this team as a utility guy or something um you know when they go out and get another guy and who knows they have Tim Anderson signed to a team friendly contract maybe if they get a Manny Machado they say Tim we're going to we're going to move on with from you and we're going to trade you to somebody else and uh you know Tim Anderson showed in the second half of the season last year um that he can actually play he got much better in the field he's going to have to show that again this year and i don't know that you know hopefully he can because they they like what they see and now it's a proven year this whole year coming up is a proven year for Tim Anderson let the young guys play and uh, let Rick Hahn continue to build. It's not time to spend yet. Yeah. Next offseason, spend some money. Yeah, I think they definitely, they'll have the money. And mm-hmm. uh, I know White Sox fans are aggravated because every time I say they'll, they have the money, they say, well, look, their biggest contract was uh, six years, $68 million for Abreu. Right. I understand that, but there was no reason for them to spend more, you know, right now. And uh, you see a lot of these teams that have spent a lot of money and they get big name free agents and they don't help. The Cubs were fortunate. They went out and got John Lester and John Lester helped them win a World Series. And he's still there. Um, they didn't spend a lot of money on the rest of their pitching. They spent players on bringing in a Chapman to help them win the World Series. They bring in Quintana and and move Eloy Jimenez. So they also, you know, when they brought in Chapman, they moved Gleyber Torres. So they lost some of the guys that they did draft and start to develop. But, um, yeah, the White Sox, they'll have the money to spend when they need to. Spend it wisely because look at Theo in Boston. When he started spending big bucks in free agency. Carl Crawford. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't work out. No, it didn't work. And then he got out of town. Yeah. Yeah, that's the way to do it. Yeah, you know what? Uh, things aren't working out well. Uh, you're gonna if you don't let me go, I'll just leave. Yeah, we call that the Lane Kiffin, the the music man thing. You well, come into town with your '76 trombones yeah. at big parade. Next thing you know, you're on to the next job. Well, it's kind of like the Pete Carroll too. Yeah. Pete Carroll got out well, of USC just well, in time. Where did Laney learn it from? Yes, from Pete. That's exactly where he from learned big it. Big game, Pete. We'll talk some football. We come back uh, as uh, NFL free agency begins this week. Chris Black, Fred Hubner with you here on ESPN 1000.
the State Street Studio, home of ESPN 1000, Chicago's all-sports station. This is WMVP AM Chicago. ESPN Radio Sports Center. I'm Christine Lisi. Five more automatic bids to the NCAA tournament on the line in five conference championship games before the selection committee reveals the field for the big dance tonight. Tip off for the first game coming up on ESPN2 for Harvard and Penn in the Ivy League final. ESPN bracketologist Joe Lenardi projecting Virginia, Villanova, Kansas, and Xavier as the one seeds. The twos, North Carolina, Duke, Purdue, and either Cincinnati or Tennessee. Bearcats take on Houston in the AAC title game while the Vols meet Kentucky in the SEC final in an hour on ESPN TV. Davidson could steal a bid from a team on the bubble with a victory over Rhode Island in the A-10 championship game. Lenardi's last four in, Texas, Oklahoma, St. Mary's, Arizona State, first four out, Louisville, Notre Dame, Baylor, and Oklahoma State. With its performance in the Big East Tournament, Providence among the schools that really helped itself the most this week with regard to the NCAA Tournament, believes ESPN's Myron Medcalf. I think that's a team that really put themselves in a, in a great position. I mean, there's such a huge difference from being an 11 or a 10 seed uh, compared to maybe being a 9 or an 8. I think Providence has kind of played themselves into that 8-9 game most likely. Uh, maybe even a step above that. Myron Metcalf on Dickerson and Hood. Golf Tiger Woods tied for second, heading into the final round of the Valspar Championship. One back of leader, Corey Connors. NBA Warrior star Steph Curry with that injured ankle. We'll miss a second straight game today against the Timberwolves. 3 Eastern ESPN Radio, 3.30 Eastern ABC, and the ESPN app. Think O'Reilly Auto Parts for all of your car care needs. We're close, convenient, and known for our guaranteed everyday low prices and excellent customer service from professional parts people you can trust. Stop by your local O'Reilly Auto Parts today. O'Reilly Auto Parts. Better parts, better prices every day. This is Chicago's Game Day. The new GM, John Dorsey, making things happen in Cleveland with their plethora of picks and activity in Cleveland, which has now become the hotbed and nerve center for the NFL universe. The Browns have dealt in one day for a quarterback, a wide receiver. They're sitting there with the first overall pick, the fourth overall pick. They are moving and shaking right now. This is Chicago's Game Day, only on ESPN 1000 and ESPNChicago.com. Oh, that was Adam Schefter breaking down what the heck the Cleveland Browns were doing. They got really active uh, the week before free agency and uh, was surprising. Uh, uh, Schefter's phone had to blow up. That had to be fun. Well, Fred, I'm watching One the of six. His three phones, I'm watching the six on Friday night, and they go do a live shot of Adam Schefter, and he's looking down at his cell phone, <laughs> breaking the news on the six right as it's happening. Yeah. He's getting all the, the text messages. He's just reading them on the air. Well, here, this guy's traded. All right, someone else is traded. Yeah, it seems it like awesome. it seems like Cleveland uh with John Dorsey they have now he got there and said, "You know, enough of this moneyball stuff. Let's uh make some changes here because this moneyball isn't working in the NFL." Although the moneyball idea has now allowed them to pull off these moves because they had so many draft picks. Yeah. Well, that's so, true. All right. We'll, yeah, see. we'll see. Maybe we'll uh be praising uh, the Browns front office like we praise Sam Hinkie in uh, Philadelphia in years in the future. He is Chris Black. I'm Fred Hubner. Let's go on out to the phones, the uh, studio hot rods hotline, and bring in John Ledyard from Fan Rags, an NFL draft analyst. John, how are you doing today? 
Hey, I'm doing great, guys. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. No, thanks a lot for jumping on in. What were your thoughts when uh, you know the Cleveland Browns were going crazy the other day? And they didn't wait for free agency. Oh, man, they didn't. And it was a good decision uh, to not wait and, and to make some moves because obviously that roster, roster needs a lot of help. But there are some pieces there. I thought that they, you know, for Jarvis Landry, I, he's not worth what they're going to pay him. But, you know, it's one year right now. We'll see what they do in terms of a long-term deal. But he clearly helps your receiving core. You know, he's clearly going to make life easier for your quarterback. He's a guy that knows how to get open. I think he's a very solid wide receiver. And the money doesn't really matter to Cleveland. You know, who cares about that? And they didn't give up a whole lot for him. And so I like that move a good bit. Um, I thought that the Tyrod Taylor move was very questionable to me. I wouldn't have given up a third-round pick for a guy who's going to be your bridge quarterback because, you know, you can sit and draft at number one overall. You can draft your quarterback of the future. You know, there's no reason why you shouldn't be drafting a quarterback of the future. And in this draft, those quarterbacks of the future also happen to be able to play right away uh, if you're drafting the right one. And so, to me, if you're Cleveland and you're drafting a guy number one that can't beat out Tyrod Taylor, I just think you picked the wrong guy. So that's kind of how I saw that move going down. And I get I get moving on from Deshaun Kaiser. I think it's a little bit early to, to give up on him. Uh, but I think they got a good a good cornerback if his head's on right. Uh, they got a good cornerback for him. And I don't think Kaiser and Hugh Jackson were going to. Men defenses there. You know, we'll get back to the quarterbacks in a second and, and the draft and, you know, the top seven picks before the Bears draft eighth. But you mentioned Jarvis Landry. I know there's a lot of Bears fans and because it happened so late in the week, I'm sure there's going to be a lot more Bears fans that are upset because they wanted to bring a guy like Jarvis Landry in. I looked at one of his numbers and the one that, that got me was he had six catches for more than 20 yards last year and the Bears had one of their receivers and Lord knows I can't remember which, who it was who had four of those similar things. And I'm saying, how do you spend that much money on a guy that's just a slot receiver? That's, you know, you right. need guys that can you know open up the field, and there's really not many of them in free agency, I don't think. Right, yeah, it's not the best class out there, you know, for sure. And Landry's evaluation is a little bit tricky because if you look at the numbers, you know, he is a guy that has not produced a lot of big plays, um, especially the last two years. Um, I don't think Adam Gates' offense asked him to do a lot more than what he does. So I think that when, when if you go through his early years and his tape at LSU even, and um, even a, the occasional flashes at Miami the last two years with Gates, you have seen him be able to make more plays down the field in terms of showing off ball skills and things like that. He's such a good route runner that he can create separation down the field. He's not a very explosive or fast player. You know, we know his 40 time and his combine in general was, was not great. So he wins with technique more than anything else. But I, I think that he is very valuable. But I, and I, so I get where Bears fans would be frustrated. But again, I just think that it, what are you going to do with him? Is it going to be a one year thing? They want to bring in guys that are going to be able to grow and, and mold with Trubisky and build long term chemistry. And that's where you, it gets sticky because what kind of money is Landry asking for in terms of a long term deal? Do you want to wrap that up in a guy? who won't be your number one receiver without a number one receiver on the roster. So I think that's where the evaluation got a little bit sticky for Bears fans or for the Bears front office, and I completely understand their perspective as well. Yeah, I just wanted to mention that name I was thinking of. How could I forget a Josh Bellamy? Josh Bellamy is the guy that had four <laughs> catches last year of 20 yards or more, you know, only two less than Jarvis Landry. So we always got Josh dare, Bellamy. How dare you, Fred? I know. How did I forget about Josh Bellamy? All right, John. So uh, when we look at all the draft mock stuff and everything leading up to the draft it almost seems like everyone has a different opinion of all the top quarterbacks who's the top quarterback right now in your eyes 
Uh, Josh Rosen, UCLA, that's my top guy for sure. Um, you know, I think when you look at the most important aspect of playing quarterback, to me, that's accuracy to, you know, to all levels of the field, accuracy, ball placement, uh, mental processing, and decision-making as a quarterback. You know, we've, we've, get, we've gotten caught up, especially in a lot of the big media markets, gotten caught up in, I think, tiering arm strength and, and physical stature uh, as the elite traits of quarterback play. That's never been the case. You can tell, talk about a bunch of quarterbacks through the years that have lacked those th- or that have had both those things and still went on to be bust. How many quarterbacks were incredibly intelligent, incredibly accurate, and went on to be bust? That's a very, very short list. And so to me, when you look at the most important aspects of quarterback play, it's that mental processing, decision-making, and accuracy. And I think that in terms of accuracy and mental processing, Rosen is at an elite level with both of those things. I think his decision-making improved a ton this season. I think it's still one of the stronger uh, traits for him in the draft. Uh, amongst this class. I think that he can do a little bit of work there. And his arm's more than good enough. I think he's comparable to, to Andrew Luck in terms of mechanics and mental processing and things like that. Where he falls off is that Luck had this elite cannon of an arm and was an elite athlete as well to be able to create outside of structure. So Rosen isn't quite as dynamic as Andrew Luck is. Uh, but I think from a mental standpoint, mechanical standpoint, accuracy standpoint, there's a lot of similarities there. So he's my top guy. Baker Mayfield, a close second. I like Mayfield a lot, too, but those are definitely my top guys. Well, that's interesting that you go with Baker Mayfield. Um, Heisman Trophy winner. He did all that great stuff at Oklahoma. What do you see from Baker Mayfield on the next level? I think for him, it's a little, you know, I think Rosen is a very universal fit in terms of offensive structure and scheme. You know, he could run a West Coast system. He could do a lot of Earhart Perkins type stuff, like what New England does and a couple other franchises. He could be a Coriel type passer, you know, for the big vertical offenses like Tampa Bay and what Bruce Arians ran in, in uh, Arizona when, before he retired. And he could put the ball down the field. So I think he can help you in a lot of different ways. Mayfield's not going to be a guy you want in those big vertical type offenses. Uh, he threw the ball accurately enough down the field, uh, and the numbers look good for him in that area. But a lot of time, I thought on tape, his receivers had to make pretty dramatic adjustments, and he benefited, I think, from, from big 12 coverages not being that great down the field. So I don't think it's in a big area of strength for him, but where his mental processing, his decision-making in the short to intermediate range, I think he'd work great in a, in a, in a West Coast offense with a lot of variation. You could be more aggressive with him. It wouldn't have to be you know, your traditional you know, conservative West Coast attack. He could be in a lot more aggressive type scheme, um, and so I think that he is going to be a good. He would be a good fit for somebody like Jeremy Bates in the Jets. I think, and, and the Broncos could even build a lot of things around Baker Mayfield. And I think teams are going to value him in that range. So uh, something like that makes sense to me for Mayfield. Again, I don't think he's a big, you know, stronger down the field type of passer, but the velocity he puts on the ball, short to intermediate, he tests tight windows. He's a quick processor. Um, he's active enough in the pocket to be able to buy time and extend. I just think he's got kind of all the big gamer traits for to be successful in the NFL. John Ledyard from FanRag Sports joining us here on ESPN 1000, talking about the NFL and the upcoming uh, draft. And I, every time it comes to quarterbacks, I have the same opinion. I, I think so many times teams get so desperate. I understand quarterbacks are the most important position on the field, but it seems like they overdraft them. Do, do a lot of teams overdraft quarterbacks because they realize that other teams are going to do it too? Because it just seems, and there's five guys right now. There's five quarterbacks out there. Are they going to go in the top 10 and the top 12? And is that a mistake for people to draft these guys that high? I think that it's interesting. It is a very interesting, probably one of the most interesting aspects of NFL draft evaluation. You know, when I grade players and rank players, I grade and rank them in a vacuum. So I take out 
positional value, and I just say, you know, if you're a high-end elite starter, you know, an all-pro, Pro Bowl-type player, I've, or I foresee you being that way, then you're going to get a first-round grade from me. If you're not, if you're just a really strong starter, a solid starter, you know, you're going to be in that second to third round range. And, you know, for every other position, that makes complete sense. For quarterback, you know, if I put a guy like Sam Darnold in the second round, people look at that and they think, oh, that means he shouldn't, he doesn't think he should go in the first round. You know, he thinks all these, Sam Darnold, you know, in the top five pick, you know, he thinks that, that's, that those opinions are all wrong. Well, no, because I'm not an NFL team, and I get from an NFL team's perspective that the most important thing is for them is finding a franchise quarterback. If you want longevity as a GM or a head coach or anything like that, it's either to find and develop a franchise quarterback that can lead your team, or it's to win without one, which is you know what Doug Peterson did last year. I mean, obviously they had went, got him most of the way there, but to win the Super Bowl without one. And so I think that that those are kind of the two ways, and it's months much easier uh, to to be able to have a franchise quarterback and to be able to win with one. And so. I think that's where teams start to prioritize these quarterbacks more than I do as an evaluator who isn't a team and who doesn't have to worry about the positional value as much when, when I build my board. So I get it from an NFL team's perspective why guys like Sam Darnold and Josh Allen will go high, um, even though I don't think they're finished products, why a guy like Lamar Jackson will go high, even though I don't think he's a finished product. I think we'll see four quarterbacks inside the top ten picks. Um, I, I do think that there will be better players – at their positions that fall a little bit further down the board because teams are reaching up for a couple of these quarterbacks. But I also understand that the value of a run-stuffing nose tackle or even a three-down linebacker may not be the same to a team's roster that a solid starter at quarterback could be. Do you know what I mean? So I think that because of that, I understand where teams are coming from, but I think you're right that better players at their specific positions will slide down the board because – they don't carry the value of the quarterback position. What bothers you about Sam Darnold on the next level? I think for Darnold, it's a couple different things. You know, people talk about his release, and I, I think there's something to that. There are times on tape where corners get kind of an early clue that the ball's coming out and are able to jump it a little bit sooner, but he still gets that thing out pretty quick. I don't expect him to change that much. For me, it's footwork. I think his footwork and his base can get really compromised. If his first read isn't there, he, he resets well, but a lot of the time he'll get a little bit panicky in the pocket. You know, mentally I think he's okay. His 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 uh, his posture kind of falls apart a little bit. Um, his technique kind of falls apart a little bit. So mechanically, I think there's things he can improve on because that affects his accuracy a good bit when those things happen. And then decision making is the big one. You know, I mentioned that as a, as a real staple of quarterback play. I think he's accurate enough, but like I said, that can improve some a little bit. I think he's a, he's a good mind for the game, but I think some of his decision making, he rushes things and will force the ball into coverage and. A lot of the mistakes he made, we talk about the turnovers, obviously, but even dropped, there were a lot of drop turnovers, too. So his numbers could have actually been a whole lot worse, I think, if these defenses could have caught the ball better. Uh, I think that a lot of the time those mistakes were reoccurring on his tape. He's very young as a redshirt sophomore, so it isn't totally troubling to me or anything. But I do worry at the next level, if he's not with a great, great uh, program, a great coach, you know, somebody who's going to kind of be able to work those things out of him, that I do think that those mistakes could really hold him back at the next level. If he is with a great coach who's able to coach those things out of him and he is able to make that transition, it wouldn't shock me at all if Darnold ends up being the best quarterback from this class. The Bears have the eighth pick overall, and when it was first out there and people started realizing who they had, they said, hey, this guy Quentin Nelson's a monster at the guard position. And then all we heard 
we being, you know, many people here at the station and all the other fans, they said, well, no, the experts say you can't draft a guard with the eighth pick overall. Now we're hearing he may not be available by the eighth pick. He may be gone already. What are your thoughts on Quentin Nelson and drafting a guard in the top ten? Yeah, to me, Quentin Nelson's the real deal. I mean, to everybody, really. I haven't found many to disagree with that stance. I mean, I think he's an elite high-end player. You know, it's it's fine to me uh, to draft a guard in the top ten. You just have to evaluate your roster. Every team it's going to be a little bit different. You know, do you have a quarterback? Do you need one? You know, I think that's the big question uh, that a lot of teams watch. Most teams, the way they're structured, you know, if not all teams, you know, that's a, that's a big priority, obviously. And so, you know, do you have your left tackle? You know, the Bears, they, they did sign Charles Leno. They locked him up, I think it was last offseason. But, you know, there's, there's definitely talk that they could improve on that. So maybe even, you know, for Bobby Massey, if he gets cut, uh, to be able to improve on the right side. And so tackle's a, a, a concern now. Is there anybody that matches the value there? I don't think that there is. I think it's a deep tackle class. I don't think it's not particularly big on high-end talent. So, you know, your tackles are important. You have pass rushers, you know, that, well, they're letting go of Pernell McPhee. They're letting go of Willie Young. You know, Leonard Floyd coming off a major injury. I think Harold Landry should get a lot of consideration in that spot. You know, they have good interior defensive linemen. So a guy like Maurice Turst and Vita Vea, you can kind of take them off the table. And I think those are really the most important positions. You know, cornerback's another one to consider. And if you've got those bases generally covered or you feel good enough about them that you can find depth at those spots later in the draft, or maybe for your scheme they don't matter as much, then I think it's fine. Yeah, it's fine to go and address the offensive line. I mean, if you can't win in the trenches, you know, I think that's such an important area of the game. And for the Bears who are going to be reliant upon a rushing attack um, and need to improve things in protecting Mitch Trubisky. So it's not just an investment in the offensive line, but it's also an investment in Trubisky to be able to keep him upright and keep him healthy. That was an issue at times last year, you know, keeping him, uh, keeping pressure off of him. So I think a guy like Nelson helps a ton. Plus the mentality he brings to the offensive line. You know, the Bears already have some nasty in that group, thanks to Kyle Long, but I think that he brings that mentality even more so. And so I think having those two guys there, when you have an offensive line that plays nasty with an edge like that, I mean, those have been some of the most successful groups in the league the past couple of years. And if the Bears can bring that mentality, I think that they'll be really successful as an offense. I think the Bears need to continue to improve on defense. And if they're drafting at eight, say Nelson's not there, and they're going with a defender, who do you think grades out as a better player? Denzel Ward, the cornerback from Ohio State, or Tremaine Edmonds, the outside linebacker from Virginia Tech? Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, I actually have Ward with a late first-round grade right now. I have to finish up this tape still. I have Edmonds with an early second-round grade. I know some people think that he's going to come off the board. If I were just guessing on the Bears' pick today, I would think that it, it would be Edmonds. Um, I think people love his frame. They love his movement skills, and I, I get on board with all that. And I am encouraged by Edmonds because I would describe him as an ascending player. I think at the beginning of the year he had a really hard time reading his keys, reacting, playing ahead of the offensive linemen uh, just from a mental standpoint. But toward the end of the year, if you watch his tape, man, he made huge strides. So I would be, I would understand why. I mean, Edmonds is going to be in my top 25 players even if he has an early second-round grade, because I just don't have that many first-round grades. So I get it from that perspective. But to me, you know, Denzel Ward's an elite cover guy. He might be the best cornerback in this entire draft. The size is a little bit concerning, uh, but you know, he can play in a variety of schemes. He's an elite-level athlete. He's good against the run you know, at 183 pounds. You don't see him get bodied a whole lot as a smaller corner. A couple times in the air, maybe. You know, I think you take that for a guy who closes down throwing windows all the time. You know, I think that you take those kind of things, and it's not like he doesn't play the ball in the air. 
he does, you're going you're gonna to lose some battles to big receivers in certain spots. I get that. And maybe for some teams that knocks him down boards a little bit. But, you know, I think that he has great coverage skills and he can also step into the slot and play there, which is really important for teams. So I would take Ward out of a conversation with those two, but I certainly understand the attraction with Edmund and the needs, obviously, there for Chicago as well. The one highest-ranked uh, wide receiver was Ridley from Alabama, at least on most people's charts. Um, the Bears obviously need wide receivers. We talked about that earlier. Second and third round, is that a good time to find guys? Are there guys in that second and third round that can help? Or you have, can you wait even later than that to get them? Because as we, as we know, the Bears need a lot of help. Yeah, they do need a lot of help. I mean, but it's, it's one of those classes where it doesn't really match up, you know, the need. Uh, you know, it's still big a receiver. If you were just picking a position for the Bears to pick in the top ten, everybody would pretty much say, you know, wide receiver is their biggest need, I think. But there really just isn't anybody who matches up with that draft range in this class. You know, it's a, it's a it's a solid wide receiver class. You know, but when I say solid, it means like there's a lot of like two and three type receivers. You know, guys that can be good assets in your passing back may have one big trait that they can hang their hat on, but. In terms of a guy that would have all-around kind of number one receiver, you know, offense runs through me type of demeanor, type of playability, I just yeah, I can't find that guy in this class right now. I, I like a lot of guys. I love Calvin Ridley. You know, I think D.J. Moore put on a show at the Combine. He doesn't always play to that athletic level, but he's certainly a guy that can help your team after the catch. You know, I think Cortland Sutton does some really good things in the air and, you know, as a blocker on the outside and, you know, a big body, he plays big a good amount of the time. Um, you know, so there's guys that in this class that absolutely they can help the team out. They can they can help an offense out. You know, there's guys that can uncover like Deshaun Hamilton and Byron Pringle that you can probably get in the third, fourth, maybe even fifth round for Pringle um, and, and grab those guys. And they're going to separate and they're going to make life, make life easier on your quarterback. But there's going to be limitations to him. You know, Hamilton drops the ball a ton, and you know he's a guy that struggles in contested catch situations at times. So. You're going to have ups and downs with all these receivers. It is going to be much more about it's going to be much more on the offensive coordinator who takes them and the quarterback they end up with in terms of who becomes the most successful out of this group. Because talent-wise, there's probably 15 to 20 guys that are fairly similar across the board. John, we appreciate you jumping on. I know it's a busy time. We'll see what happens in free agency. Maybe we'll grab you again before the draft starts. Okay? Absolutely. Thank you guys so much. Appreciate you having me on. Thanks, John. John Ledyard from uh, FanRag Sports Network. You can go to his site. He's got tons of stuff. Differentiating North Carolina State's interior defensive line duo was one of his latest things. So he breaks it down really, really well for you. You can tell just by the way he talks. He's 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 done it all. He's broken it all down. He's throwing out those wide receivers uh, to us. And uh, the Bears are going to need help at that wide receiver position. 312-332-3776. You want to jump on in. we got a lot of stuff to talk about before we're out of here at the top of the hour. A lot of little things we can go back and touch on. Um, when he was talking about quarterbacks, I don't know how you feel about it. As I was saying, it is the most position and most important position. But I always think the teams, they tell you we're going to draft the best player available. And then they always go for need and draft a quarterback. Like you look at the New York Giants have the second pick. They still have Eli Manning. Dave Gettleman, who came over there, says he Eli Manning's got a few more years there. They had a lot, a lot of problems last year because of injuries. Do you see the Giants taking a quarterback? Do you see the Colts taking a quarterback now? Because who knows what's going to happen with luck. The Browns are going to take one, either at one and four or four. Then you got the Broncos, who probably will have to take another one. Um, you have the Jets, who've been quarterback weary. And then you have Tampa. Tampa's not drafting a quarterback. So you figure what? Jets, Broncos... 
Giants or Colts and Brown says four, maybe five? Maybe five. I think you're guaranteed three. Uh, okay. Browns, Broncos, Jets. I think those three go quarterback. Then you're right. I think the Giants could. Uh, I think also in that list, uh, you could see Indianapolis deciding that they might need to get a second quarterback behind Luck. Uh, yeah, you're right. It could go five. It could go three. Yeah. Um, I think it was an interesting conversation because uh, the the way John looks at it is that his assessment of the quarterbacks, for the most part, is dramatically different than what, say, you've heard Mel Kuyper or right. Todd McShay say. And, and there's the one guy who wasn't even mentioned, Josh Allen, who to me seems like he's a workout warrior type guy. Like right. his physical tools seem to be like eye-popping but does that translate into being a good quarterback you know like brock osweiler tall yeah he could stand in there he yeah. can make the throws yeah. really can spin it <laughs> spinner right <laughs> terrible quarterback uh-huh so yes. like that, that's where you have to differentiate all this pre-draft stuff is like what have you seen how do they measure how do they fit right yeah and like and that's where i agree that Josh Rosen could be the best quarterback of the group because I watched him play at UCLA and he could drop in the bucket. He can make every throw. He is a stand in the pocket type quarterback who makes smart decisions. I like Josh Rosen. I'm a little surprised at the analysis on Sam Darnold because USC last year was terrible. Without Darnold, they were a four win team. Right. And he saved their butt so many times. And he's one of those quarterbacks, Fred, that I think there are things that you can't measure with the play from Sam Darnold. You know, he's he's smart. He gets his teammates to rally around him, and he makes good plays. I know the turnovers were there last year, but I'm telling you, as a USC fan, he was not working with a lot. Yeah, I heard 37. Does yeah. that make sense? Not uh, just interceptions, but interceptions, fumbles. fumbles and, yeah. L- listen. That's a lot. That head coaching staff, we're going to find out soon for Southern Cal how Clay Helton is as a head coach when he doesn't have Sam Darnold saving his butt every single week and T Martin as the offensive coordinator, not good. Yeah. So I, I think if he's in the right situation, I think he's going to be a high level NFL quarterback. Baker Mayfield, I think is really interesting too, because how do you measure that? Yeah. And it's interesting too. Murph mentioned yesterday. We'll get right back to it too. About some people say Baker Mayfield's dropping. You know what I've learned? I like listening to all the experts, but I don't necessarily trust any of them. And trust is the wrong word. Uh, we're all guessing. Sure. We have no idea what the, what the Giants think, what the Colts think, what the Browns, because right. no one's going to tell you. Right. So we'll find out what, as it gets closer to the draft, we may find out by some of the free agent moves. It's tough for a lot of these teams. They're going to find out in free agency that, you know what, we can grab a guy in free agency and that's going to change our draft need. We come back, we'll talk more NFL. We will talk with you if you want to jump in. 312-332-3776. What do you want the Bears to do with the eighth pick overall? You've heard about all of it. You've heard about Quentin Nelson. You've heard about um, you know defensive backs, Denzel Ward, other guys. What do you want the Bears to do? 312-332-3776. Chris Black, Fred Huebner here till the top of the hour on ESPN 1000. ESPN Radio Sports Center. I'm Christine Lisi. College basketball's championship week caps off with five games today, which means five more automatic bids to the NCAA tournament will be handed out on ESPN2. It's the first game of the day, Ivy League title game 
Harvard leads Penn 26-13 in the first half. The NCAA Selection Committee unveils the field for the tourney at 6 Eastern. Virginia, Villanova, Kansas, Xavier projected by ESPN bracketologist Joe Lenardi as the number one seeds. His twos, North Carolina, Duke, Purdue, and either Cincinnati or Tennessee. Bearcats take on Houston in the AAC final today, while the Vols meet Kentucky in the SEC title game top of the hour on ESPN TV. Lenardi's last four in, Texas, Oklahoma, St. Mary's, Arizona State. First four out, Louisville, Notre Dame, Baylor, and Oklahoma State. Davidson, by the way, could steal a bid from a bubble team with a win over Rhode Island in the A-10 final. Tiger Woods tied for second, one stroke back of leader Corey Connors at the Valspar Championship. With the progress he's made the last few months in his return from back surgery, Woods' first PGA Tour win since 2013 should come soon, in the opinion of ESPN golf writer Jason Sobel. Maybe not this Sunday, but mm. next Sunday. Let's talk again, because I think that the Arnold Palmer in baseball has won a billion times already. Uh, such a good spot for him. Yeah. Feels not quite as good as it is this week. You won't have too many people chasing him down. I, I love him. Maybe even next Sunday more than this Sunday, but he's got a great shot today. Jason Sobel on the best week ever with Peter Burns. NFL Giants have told corner Dominique rogers Camardi he's being released. Team will save about $6.5 million by cutting him. Kevin Durant and the Warriors head to Minnesota to take on a feisty Carl Anthony Towns and the T-Wolves. The Warriors and T-Wolves, today at 3 Eastern on ABC and ESPN Radio. Chicago's Game Day, only on ESPN 1000 and ESPNChicago.com. Chris Black, Fred Hubner. We're usually sitting here with Adam Abdallah, but from what I understand, Adam Dollar. Abdallah has now has now completely uh, remade himself in this New York guy. City, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you follow his uh, Instagram or his Twitter over the weekend, he's in New York City, and he... Uh, or. A hipster millennial has taken his phone <laughs> and is just posting all these trendy little photos of food and wall art that he sees, graffiti art, sneakers. I mean, it's unbelievable. How'd that happen? How'd that, how this did this guy geez. go to New York City once and then it's like, wow, turns into a... Uh, complete hipster i fully expect him to come back with a big floppy knit hat that he never takes mm-hmm. off and a nose ring he's not gonna shower anymore there nope. you go he's gonna have a little skateboard that he's gonna ride to work he's gonna uh hear he's a, a longboard all over the place cord cut his cable <laughs> but now he's now he's gonna disconnect did you see that uh piece in the new york times about the the nike exec who disconnected from the free world no he's living on a pig farm in ohio this is going to be Abdallah. So now he's not going to pay attention to the news or world events because now he's a, he's a hipster. He likes sitting in a room alone by himself with his thoughts. And there are Man, times it's not, unbelievable. There are times that's not a bad thing. Uh, well, when but, you're him, it might be a bad let's thing. Let's get to the phones. Also, I got to talk about, I got to talk about Richard Sherman in a minute, but let's go to Elmwood Park and Eric. Eric, you're on ESPN 1000. How you doing? Good. How are you guys doing today? Doing great. So my uh, my prediction all it kind of stems from where Kirk Cousins signs. If he goes to either Arizona or uh, Minnesota, then my scenario could work. Is that uh, three or three out of the four quarterbacks go before eight, and Buffalo freaks out and trades both its first round draft picks to the Bears? Um, like I said, if he goes to Minnesota, then the Jets and the Giants and the Broncos might be looking to grab one of those young quarterbacks. 
Do you think trading down, I mean, getting an extra pick, but trading trading down from 8 to 21 and 22 is a good move? I do because, you know, there's so many needs on on both sides of the ball that if you can drop back and get two top 30 guys instead of one top 10, um, which, I mean, let's face it, track record in the top 10 for Ryan Pace isn't uh, – <laughs> isn't stellar right so i mean if he hits 50 percent on the first round with two two draft picks then then we're we're still okay but if he busts out in the eighth pick again um then we're we're in even more trouble than we are currently eric appreciate the call um i i just think that's if, if those picks were maybe you know 15 and 16 I would say that'd be a great deal. I don't know about 21 and 22. I get the mindset. The Bears don't have enough on the roster, so you need more talented players. I get that, but I kind of would like a top 10 stud. Uh Uh, Am I being selfish? I just want to get a player, a cornerback, an outside linebacker, someone that will be there for 10-plus years who can elevate the defense to that next level. So you want you go on to go defense uh, at that point. You know why, Fred? Because here's the thing. The wide receiver position is the major hole on the offensive side of the ball. Right. You can address that in the second, third, fourth round. Yeah. You can address that in free agency. You can land one of these top guys, Robinson. You can land a Sammy Watkins. Those are the only two top guys. I mean, because you look elsewhere after those two. There ain't much. Right. So, yeah. But if you get one of those guys plus a second, third, fourth round wide receiver to maybe be your slot guy or whatever. To go you with mix, Cameron Meredith. You mix in and, Cam Meredith. Yeah. You see what you get in Kevin White. And then now you're starting to build a wide receiver core. You can take care of it that way. But to add a young defensive player in the top 10, I think that would really help them the best moving forward. I know the wide receiver is a position in need, and I know the offensive line could be worked on, but you could also find an offensive lineman in free agency to help you out in the short term as well. Yeah, you could. Um, I, I think the defensive player will get you the best value at that pick. Okay. Chubb likely would be gone. Likely. Um, uh, Denzel Ward is a possibility. Mm-hmm. Minka Fitzpatrick likely will be gone. Right. If he's not, you got to grab him, right? Well, yeah, absolutely. And Fred, like what you were saying is, if five quarterbacks go, right, all of a sudden Mika Fitzpatrick is there. Yeah. All of a sudden Quentin Nelson is there. No, so. But see, and at that point, now what do you do? Because now you're going to get other teams calling you and saying, "Listen, we want to move up to grab such and such." Do you, as Ryan Pay, say, "Listen, okay, we'll move down to let me. I get the draft order here. We'll move down to I don't know, eleven or twelve or thirteen, and you give us a, your second round pick if you want a guy. Do you want? Do you do that? Move down a couple more instead of taking a Fitzpatrick or a Denzel Ward because you prob they probably won't be there when you do pick." Yeah, that's a later. good point. So, like, if Edmonds or Rachel, you can get Rokon Smith is yeah. there, or or someone like that is there, I that's what I think is. I think the number one need is the Bears need to get better in the pass rush. Yes, and then second secondary is where that's the second biggest need in my my eyes. Well, and a lot of times the secondary, the improved secondary, makes the pass rush better. Exactly. I mean, you know, and most people know that if you got you have good cornerbacks. And you have decent safeties, then your, you know, your pass rush is going to help make them be- even better. And, uh, you know, yeah, Kyle it's a, ch- it's a chicken well. egg too, yeah, because if you have good cornerbacks, you have the added time 
to get to the quarterback as well. Yeah. So yeah, so I mean, it, and I think that Vic Fangio. I, I'm so happy that Vic Fangio stuck around. That Vic Fangio was was a guy that uh, Matt Nagy wanted to keep. It's not like Ryan Pace said, "Listen, Matt, we're keeping Vic Fangio." Now he wanted to, but Nagy came in and said, "No, no, no, that's fine. I want he'd be my guy. He'd be my the guy I'd select. That's great." I think that what he's done, you need guys like Akeem Hicks to step up again, Jonathan Bullard to step up, other guys that are in that line, Eddie Goldman to not have a personal foul penalty on the first series of games. He did it <laughs> each of the last two games, I want to say. He had a personal yeah. foul penalty in the first drive. And there's nothing worse than extending a drive when you get a personal foul penalty on third down, and he did it twice. Yeah. Um, you know, wise up a little bit. Uh, otherwise, you know, you're you're a good player. You want to be a good player, don't do those kind of stupid things. And then, you know, you got Danny, Danny Trevathan healthy, and you've got some other guys who have shown that they can do it. But, you know, there are other guys there. And Roquan Smith is a guy, again, I don't watch a lot of college football, and I make no secret of that. But when I saw him play... In the championship game, I said, every tackle is yeah, made by this out. guy. He stood he out. He made every tackle. Yeah. He's all over the field. I mean, that's that's the kind of guy you want. You want a guy that's going to be all over the field, make the plays, and um, make your defense one that the other teams are afraid to go against, that they have to scheme to beat you. So many offenses have not needed to do that against Bears defenses over the last several years. Yeah, I mean, look at the teams in the division. You're going to have Aaron Rodgers with the Packers, yep. Matthew Stafford with the Lions, and who knows possibly who? Kirk Cousins yeah. with the Vikings. You need to be able to get to the quarterback. And that's the – see, and I guess my thought process is all coming from how can the Bears get good in the shortest amount of time? Yeah. Because time is not on Ryan Pace's side. Not now it's not. No. So the the clock, the clock is ticking, and he needs to have a team that's competitive. And how in the NFL do you get competitive the quickest? By having a really good defense. Right. And once the really good defense is set, now you're in every game, right? And then once you're in every game – now do you have a quarterback who can win the games? And we'll see if Trubisky's that guy, but I think adding to the defense will get them to that competitive level on a more consistent basis quickly. Do you expect, I mean, it, it's interesting that the best, to me it's interesting, that the best wide receiver out there, the one that's getting mentioned the most, is one that's coming off an injury in Allen Robinson. I mean, it, it's tough, especially for a guy like Ryan Pace who's got, Kevin White there, and he's had injury problems with guys he's brought in, free agents, Pernell McPhee, who they finally were able to cut loose. You know, you bring guys in, they're hurt when you bring them in, and now they're, you know, they continue to get hurt, and you're, you're puzzled by that. You shouldn't be. Well, here's Allen Robinson coming in off an injury. I mean, that's quite a jump. You know, you, you hope that he's going to be able to come back from the injury. You hope he's going to be able to be the receiver he was before. And then you have Sammy Watkins, and after that, what, Marquise Lee? I mean, he's like third or fourth. There's not a lot there, so then you have to rely on your draft, and I don't know. It, it's going to be this week's going to be interesting to me to see who the free agents are that go quickly, who, right. how much, what the Bears do, because you know the Bears fans are all waiting. They're waiting for Wednesday to see what the Bears are going to do, yeah. free agent wise, and I think we all are. And uh, with the, with the new head coaching, uh, the new head coach, the new staff, uh, we're expecting nice. I, we're not expecting necessarily the nine wins Cap is expecting. Nine, right? Yeah. We're not yeah. necessarily expecting that. <laughs> nine but wins. teams yep. have gotten better quickly. I mean, you know, the Rams went from, what, three to 13 wins? I mean, they did get a new They got a new head coach. Bears got a new head coach. They got two. Uh, they got new receivers. And then they had a quarterback in the second year and figured it out. 
Well, you know, if the Bears can do something similar, nine, in my opinion, is not out of the question. It could happen. The division's tough. The schedule is real tough. At home especially. They're playing the Rams and the Patriots at home at Soldier Field. They've got to make that a place that uh, teams are afraid to come into. And I think your point, playing, you know, being improving your defense is one of those. Real quickly, people that have listened to me for over the years probably know I'm a a Niner fan. Mm -hmm. It was real real tough. Then it was fun. Then it was tough again. Um, But you always find a quarterback. Yeah. Always. Yeah. You always find a quarterback. Yeah. Now Jimmy Garoppolo's there and he signed this big long-term deal and they have signed some wide receivers already and they brought, you know, they've got guys in, but they also yesterday went out and I don't know if this is a three-year deal or a one-year deal. I'm reading one year, nine million or three years, 35 million. I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, it's too much for Richard Sherman, my opinion. Uh, he stays in the division. He's coming off an Achilles injury. They say he'll be ready. And then I, I saw someone tweeted this earlier. They said, well, you know that since 2012, Richard Sherman has the most <laughs> interceptions against the Niners. Four. Okay, this is 2018 coming up. <laughs> so he's had four interceptions in, let's see, 2012. 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. So in, in five or six years, he's had four interceptions. That makes it, I mean, he's, he's old. He's getting old. He's getting beat. He's not the cover guy that he was before. Sure, he can probably bring some leadership to that team. They got a guy like Eric Reed who brings leadership to that team. If you watch the Niners play, he's all over the field. They can stay healthy. And they've got some other guys on the defensive side. I don't know that Richard Sherman's a guy you need. Um, but Stanford guy, John Lynch, Stanford guy, you bring in a guy that has hurt you in the past. And I think it was a wrong move. I know that they were beat. They didn't have a great secondary last year. But, you know, going out and grabbing Richard Sherman, I don't think it was a smart move. Well, it might work for one year, but I think anything beyond that is up for grabs. I'll prove it year. Yeah. Like, you know, the Bears did it with Tracy Porter year. And I, I use him as an example, but it's the easiest one. When John Fox was here, they brought Tracy Porter in and said, here, prove it. We'll give you another deal. He did. They did. They gave him another year. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Richard Sherman, fine. You want to you want to prove you can play? Go right ahead. But for eight or nine million, not for more than that. Yeah, and Fred, you're right on the fact that he's getting older, and it's not the fact that it's just he's getting older. He's slowing down a bit, and yeah. his game isn't speed to begin with. So he's like a position corner where where he's making the right move before the wide receiver is. He's right. breaking on the pass earlier and all this stuff. So I I would be interested if it gets to a certain point with Richard Sherman, maybe two, three years from now, is he like one of those Charles Woodson type players where they move him to, to safety? safety? Yeah. Because he does have the build, he could. I know he could play like a rover type position. I was in here one day where Charles Peanut Tillman came in studio, mm-hmm. and I asked him. I said, "I said this may be a strange question to ask you, but for years people thought you should have been moved to safety, right?" And he basically told me he didn't want to move because safeties don't make as much money as cornerbacks do. Oh, it's smart. Well, it is smart, but for the betterment of the team, you could have moved to safety. Here, here's the key, Fred. It's smart. Come on, for the betterment of Hold the on. team, I'm on weekends. It's smart <laughs> until yeah, a, a being paid as a safety still gets paid more than not playing at all. Yes, it does. <laughs> but it may not be as much as you, as FBI agents get paid. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. Uh, Chris Black, Fred Hubner, we'll wrap things up. We come back right here on ESPN 1000. I'll play safety. This is Chicago's Game Day, only on ESPN 1000 at ESPNChicago.com. We're less than a week away from St. Patrick's Day. 
And we're less than a day away. Hell, we're, let's see, how many hours? Six hours away, seven hours away from uh, the uh, selection committee uh, coming out of their little hole and uh, telling us. Telling coming us, out of their little hole? Which is, <laughs> yes. They're not the groundhog, well, right? Sometimes they are. Uh, and telling <laughs> us exactly what the the uh, the pairings look like. And, uh, and then tomorrow at offices around the country, everybody will be asking you for 10 or 20 or fifty dollars or whatever it may be it's your to favorite get thing of the, the year. pool it's your favorite thing fred it can be yeah I, i've been in a couple times my, my buddy mark malero moved for runs a pool and he always tells me and uh he, he's the same guy that runs the college football bowl pool that one year i would have won eight hundred dollars and all of cam newton had to do his kneel <laughs> was was you know fall into the end zone but right. instead he knelt at the one they yeah. won their championship and i lost eight hundred dollars so but anyway that's another story for another day. Yes. I tell it quite often. That's why people say, that's why you don't like Cam Newton. I said, well, it makes it. That's he, one of know, the reasons. He's got to do a lot more now for me to enjoy him. So, Fred, did you see this story uh, from earlier in the week that there was going to be a robot that was going to replace the fast food worker? It was a burger flipping robot? No, I did, did not. Did you, not, you didn't see the story in California? I they mean, didn't have it in Nashville. I was big, in Nashville Big surprise. A fast food kitchen in California was going to implement... This burger flipping robot named Flippy, and you could uh, you could the it would also flip the burger and mm-hmm. put like the condiments you wanted on it or uh, not the condiments but they would uh, determine the the heat temperature and yep. then flip it at the right time and then take it off the grill. Uh, Flippy lasted one day. <laughs> uh, there were too many orders in Pasadena at this restaurant for Flippy to make the burgers. He couldn't keep up with demand, so they had to bring in humans to help Flippy out. See, Fred? The that's robots terrible. are not taking over because Flippy couldn't flip enough burgers. That that's They'd have to have a pretty long thing. Think about all the... I mean, a lot of these burger places now, they make them as you order. Yeah. You know, and even, even at McDonald's, I think... Um, they don't necessarily make it, but it's already warm, and then they make the whole sandwich at the time. Chief technology officer from the Cali Group, the group that made the robot, Cali. said the problem is it's mostly timing. When you're in the back working with people, you talk to each other. Flippy, you kind of have to work around his schedule. <laughs> you have to choreograph movements around him to fit yourself in, and he couldn't keep up with all the demand. We've so, all had coworkers like that. Yeah. You just got to work around them no matter what. Well, Eric, here's the key. We all thought with Flippy, that was the start, that the robots were coming. They were going to take over everything. But no, we're safe, everyone. Flippy the robot couldn't keep up with the burger flipping. Hey, did, did everybody here, I, I, I missed it, Fred. Did everybody here congratulate uh, Felix and his wife for having their baby? No, but congratulations to Felix. Emma, correct? Yes. Yes. I saw the pictures on Facebook, very, very Twitter. Cute. I texted him yesterday. Very, very cute. Uh, uh, you know, he's a, it's relief, a relief for him because yes. he was doing Notre Dame basketball sitting here waiting for something <laughs> to happen. Well, it finally happened. Notre Dame basketball won't happen anymore, but Emma is there. So that's that's always nice to see. Thanks, Eric Ostrowski, Chris Black, Fred Hubner. I think if dollars back next week. Yeah, I have no knows. idea. We'll figure it out when we get here. Hipster. Thanks for listening here on ESPN 1000.